Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, and once again this week, Noel's on assignment. So joining me at, at the uh, podcast, coming back for another guest co-hosting gig is uh, from the AV Club, Emily L. Stevens. Emily, welcome back to the podcast. We're so, well, we are. It's Royal We. We, myself and our listeners, are so excited that you're back with us this week. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be back, too. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun. Uh, we've got an insane list of shows to talk about uh, here. There, we're, we're, we had we have some premieres. We have finales. It's We're getting into the summer TV for realsies now, but there's still quite a few um, sort of endings, shows, and uh, a lot of transition. But before we talk about any of our weekend TV, we should say, of course, uh, your fabulous husband, Dennis Perkins, also of the AV Club, will be joining us for a season spotlight on The Americans Season 4. I'm really excited for that. That's coming at the end of the show. And I know he's excited for it, too. We both love The Americans. We've been glued to it all season. We've, uh, we're going to have so much uh, to talk about with that. I've been, uh, Noel, of course, doesn't watch The Americans, not his thing. Um, so I've just been itching to dive in with it with some people. So listeners, that's going to just be a lot of fun at the end of the show. But before we get into that, before we get into our weekend TV, um, of course, this is our first uh, podcast back after Orlando. And um, I felt that we should, you know, acknowledge the worst Worst mass shooting on American soil um, and with the highest casualties and the most affected um, since, of course, uh, worst mass shooting, uh, the worst terror incident since 9-11. And the way I wanted to address it was to talk about, because there have been people much more qualified than myself talking about this all week. Um, So I thought the way I should talk about it is that this week, every section when we have our what wins your week in listeners we'll have different things that we say but for me what won my week in tv for every category was the democratic filibuster from from the senate this week i watched about i watched i want to say 10 hours of it um while i was doing other work and while i was uh emailing and while i was writing out music for my students it was an amazing, amazing thing to watch, and it never lost my interest. Um, it will surprise none of our listeners to hear that I am, you know, I am very liberal. I, I am progressive socially, and um, and tend to vote in that way. I believe strongly in gun control, in tougher restrictions, on, on background checks, and I don't understand why our country can't when our country overwhelmingly supports these these concepts that were being discussed in the filibuster. I don't understand why our Congress can't make it happen or isn't willing, more specifically. They can. They're not willing to make it happen. So for me, taking all of um, being able to channel some measure of my anger and my frustration and my grief into watching uh, 30-something, 40-something Congress people, senators actually talk about something of interest and something of substance on the Congress floor was incredibly inspirational to me. Um, and to have it be a filibuster 
that ran just under 15 hours, eighth longest in Senate history, um, be filled with substance throughout. Nobody was reading Green Eggs and Ham. Nobody was singing songs. Nobody was trying to delay something. Rather than filibustering to delay Congress and avoid, prevent Congress from taking action, this was a filibuster designed to force Congress to enact change, to actually do something. And for me, um, it was incredibly, I mean, I just couldn't go to bed. I was like, if these people are going to be standing up and still talking and still doing this at, you know, two in the morning their time, the least I can do is watch it. The least I can do is be informed. Um, So it was very powerful for me. Emily, did you watch any of the film? Like, I didn't even know what was happening at first. It was un- until Twitter filled me in. I don't know if you were following any of this, this this week or if even really that was something you wanted to be thinking about this week. I desperately wanted to be thinking about it. I was working through the filibuster, so I got to see very, very little of it, although my husband and I both called in to our representatives. And that was a really great tribute, Kate. That's I, I wish I could have seen I wish I could have seen it live happening because Wendy Davis's filibuster mm-hmm. moved me so much as it did so many people and uh, and I would have liked to have been a part of this as it was going on but I I it took me by surprise as well so I didn't get a chance to yeah yeah as a as an answer this is this is what thoughts and prayers really look like there's been a lot of talk about thoughts and prayers after any sort of I was going to say disaster but we talk about gun violence like it's a natural disaster and that is a terrible rhetorical mistake um, you know, thoughts and prayers are great, but not from the people who can actually make change happen. I want more than that from them. And to see them standing up, literally standing up and doing it is uh, finally, it's not enough, but it's better than what we had. Yeah. And who knows if it will amount to anything, at least it will amount to apparently there are going to be votes on these these uh, proposals by Senate Democrats, um, at least that is something. At least there are votes, and at least then come voting day in November, people can vote, can speak with their votes and either support or uh, the, the, the people who stood up and participated and were trying to work, including the two Republicans, by the way, I should mention, the two right. Senate Republicans who and the Independent as well, who joined in, in this filibuster, support the people in their Congress, uh, in their Senate, who are trying to enact change after um, Orlando, change that should have happened long ago. Or they can vote, uh, show their intention with their vote against the people who very notably were absent or did not participate, did not show up. Now, this was a surprise to many people in the Senate. They didn't, there wasn't some big plan to have this happen ahead of time. So for those people who were out of town, who were doing, who were away, there's, they couldn't have participated. But there are lots of people who could have and didn't. So, um, yeah, it was, and again, like I said, the fact that the entire 14 hours and 50 minutes was filled with content, was filled with passion, was filled with so each person coming up and contributing something new. Every now and again, they'd have senators come up and reiterate what the talking points were, what the um, the mission statement was, you know, for the for people who were tuning in new, who hadn't you know necessarily been following the whole thing, which, you know, allows them to fill time, but also, you know, allows new new people checking and trying to find out what's going on you know to know what, what exactly is happening um but i mean i thought senator uh tammy baldwin's um things that she said were particularly moving uh senator booker's um 
various speeches through the day were very moving. And of course, the whole thing was um, was the whole filibuster was run by was taken on by Senator Murphy, um, uh, senator from from the area, you know, just near Newton, Newtown. So I thought that was very fitting that it was him who was centering the, the filibuster. I really very much hope and uh, hope doesn't do anything for us here. So I, all I can do is hope that something comes out of this, but um, this, any of the senators who are out there, anybody who works for them, anybody who hasn't called in yet, there's something you can do. You can call and you can harass your Congress people. And if you are, if somehow somebody in the Congress is listening to this, you can vote. And please don't let down the your constituents. Please don't let down the overwhelming majority of Americans who support these these issues. Um, but I think we should probably. I'm going to just keep going. I'm just going to keep talking of wanting to talk about politics. And this is not a podcast about politics, as much as we will talk a little bit more politics when we get into our week in comedy. Um, so I think I should end it there. Unless Emily, do you have any other thoughts? Any other things you wanted to to add no, about? That was lovely. So um, so now uh, we're going to take a break and listen to some music and we're going to come back and, you know, celebrate our culture and um, our country and the contributions of so many. Uh, fittingly, we're going to kick things off with the Tony Awards because I feel like that is the best way, was the best way to kick off our Sunday and to kick off this week after the tragedy and the massacre and the violence of Orlando with a celebration of diversity and of art and beauty. So we're going to listen to some music and we're going to come back and talk some Tonys and then talk our week in, in comedy. So we'll be right back after this. To the theater kids from any place with stardust in their eyes of every color, class and race and face and shape and size. To the boys and girls, transgenders too, to every Broadway would be. comedy and reality uh emily and i are going to talk some tony awards um then i'm gonna talk a little oj made in america the espn uh, massive uh, 30 for 30 documentary that is currently in process this week uh then we'll dive in with another period which had its season two premiere tubman uh, i'll talk a little wrecked on tbs all is not lost and rest in peace Callaway hinkle which is the uh the the new tbs uh, the, the the two-part premiere or two episode uh premiere of that show from on tbs and we <laughs> i will have a very very few thoughts on uncle buck on abc <laughs> which had its pilot as well as the second episode that i did not watch but i'll talk a little bit about the pilot um then we'll dive in with mindy project there's no crying and soft 
softball. It's been literally years, Emily, since I watched the Mindy Project. So I'm looking forward to you holding my hand through that one. Uh, I have thought. I have questions and I have thoughts because I don't really know what's going on. But it's going to be fun. Um, and then we'll talk some comedy bang bang. Uh, Tegan and Sarah wear leather jackets and skinny jeans. Silicon Valley, Bachman's earnings override. Uh, Veep, Camp David, Full Frontal with Samantha B. Oh, such beautiful, beautiful, furious vengeance and anger. Oh, it was beautiful. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and we'll round out our week in comedy with Inside Amy Schumer rubbing our clips. So let's talk, kick things off with the Tony Awards. So I was very much looking forward to the Tony Awards. I'm waiting with bated breath for next week when Hamilton tickets go on sale in Chicago. I'm so excited. Um, so, of course, I was going to be excited about the Tony Awards for the Hamilton of it all. But even just as a musician, as a musical theater fan, I always love the Tony Awards. Um, it's my my opportunity to actually see scenes from these different shows actually produced because there's a zero percent chance I'm getting to Broadway. Um, so I always enjoy the, the, the Tony awards. Uh, Emily, do you guys tend to watch the Tonys or did you, was this a, you know, I know you checked out a few clips. Um, was this one that, that you was like a more rare occurrence for you to check in on the Tonys? I, you know, I usually watch a few clips. I don't usually make time for the whole broadcast. And I, this was a really good reminder that I should make time for the whole broadcast. Again, I was working through it and I just couldn't make time for it. But next time I will, because yeah, this just even seeing these clips, you know, reproduced on YouTube or wherever, it is a great reminder that this is an experience I never get to see in my daily life. This is not like watching the Oscars, even at its best. I find the Oscars pretty tedious, but this this reminded me that watching live theater is an experience completely unique. It's not like watching something in a cinema. It's not like watching something on a screen at home. It's even the clips gave me goosebumps. Yeah, they were really good this year. <laughs> did you have uh, any particular ones you were excited about? Or like, did you discover any new shows that maybe you hadn't heard of? Well, I love Hamilton. Although I, I have to admit I own the Hamilton soundtrack, and in fact, it's been my writing soundtrack for, I don't know, a few months now, but only the first half of it. That's how long it takes me to finish a project, uh-huh. or I start over, and then I <laughs> I come back to about the halfway point, and so I've barely listened to the second half at all. Uh, <laughs> so I was looking forward to Hamilton, but yeah, Spring Awakening was really exciting to learn about. I'd never heard of it before. So seeing just seeing Marley Matlin introduce it was fantastic. One of my most influential theater-going experiences as a kid was uh, a production of Children of a Lesser God, and that really stuck with me. Um, but the opening number was great. Seeing the kid playing young James Corden really communicates the influence of theater, uh, especially on young people, but, you know, on all of us. Mm. And particularly, it's a really big message that we need to hear that don't wonder if this could be you. It absolutely could be, is a line he sang. And that's a message that is even clearer and more important, given how many Tony winners this year were people of color. And in contrast to the Oscars, for example. And even more important as a sob for the horrors of Orlando's murder, because, you know, the theater is a place that has always been a haven for my gay friends and my bi friends and my, I, you know, we all found ourselves there. G, T, B, L, Q. 
we were all there. And it meant a lot to us. That idea that you can be accepted as the person you are. You can masquerade as somebody else, but you are who you are, and that is what's important. That's what That was one of the takeaway messages from the Color Purple medley, was most of all, I'm thankful for who I really am. And that's a message we can all stand to hear a little more. Yeah. At that opening number, I thought was so wonderful. And it, I was getting goosebumps. Like you said, I was getting goosebumps watching it. Because, of course, I didn't realize, because I haven't been, you know, I, I really enjoyed the Tony Awards. Like you, I actually was working through it, so I didn't get to watch it live. Um, and I got home from work that day at about midnight and it was up for another hour watching clips on YouTube. <laughs> um, but... Uh, so I didn't I, I didn't follow it as uh, like for who all the nominees were. I, I knew vaguely that Hamilton had been nominated for like an insane number of things, but that was pretty much all I knew about it. So when when they have like the the kids on stage in the opening number at the very end, I didn't know that those were going to become then our actual nominees. And so I was like, they're showing the kids and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. How diverse these group of kids are. That's wonderful. It's great. And then it was actually that was who had been nominated. I was just it was so beautiful to to see that whole wonderfully diverse group of people of incredibly talented actors and and singers and dancers uh, singing about together like inclusion and togetherness and um, and excitement and art and beauty it was so wonderful to see that and uh, to have it not just be the James Corden show which might I just say he did an impressive job. That was a lot of moving. And then like, and to have the tap break be at the end, you know, (laughs) not at the beginning when he's got more energy, but like after he's already sung a bajillion things and been moving around. Um, I thought that was very impressive. And of course, just the comedic timing that he was showing through it as well. I mean, it's, it's no surprise. The guy has a Tony, the guy has been on Broadway and uh, has a long career. Um, but I just thought he did a really good job. And I just, I loved the earnestness of it. I'm almost never going to, uh, fault something for being earnest and for wearing its heart on its sleeve. And that feels so perfect for the Tony Awards specifically. Um, we all know theater kids, right? (laughs) That's, that's what theater kids are. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. So yeah, I thought the the different numbers that I saw, you already referenced a few of them. Um, I, I really liked, pretty much everything I saw so like I saw I watched the waitress one waitress one which was good um there the I watched the um on your feet which is the Gloria Estefan musical which eh. but there were these two little kids who were just moving like crazy um and you know just dancing super fast and everything in that number I was it was super impressive I thought the school of rock number was was a lot of fun and I think all the kids were actually playing their own instruments in that which is you know something oh. I'm going to appreciate as someone who started playing violin when I was five I always appreciate seeing fellow young musicians um and um yeah just every everything I saw I mean you can the energy in the room was also so infectious um there you can find a few YouTube clips but during commercial breaks James Corden was pulling people up on stage and having them karaoke so like <laughs> I missed yeah, you can find a, like a cell phone video of Jake Gyllenhaal and Sean Hayes singing A Whole New World. <laughs> and like at the end, the guy's like 30 seconds from commercial. And that's when they wrap it up. I mean, I just think that's like the, the fun and the, the excitement of the night was really, really palpable in different speeches and in um, it just in the, the whole, whole, you know, what I saw of the whole proceeding. So I just thought it was super duper fun. And I'm glad that you enjoyed what you watched. 
Yeah, and I love that the message of this, and again, unlike the message really that you take away from the Grammys or the Oscars, the message of this whole production, or at least of the parts of it that I saw, was consistently in every way that it could be, the theater is for you. It's open to you. You can be this person. You can you can be the person you imagine being. Whatever limitations the world is trying to put on you, whatever limitations you may have intrinsically in yourself, you can be the best yourself in the theater. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I found, uh, one of the things that amused me uh, was watching, man, the Obamas introduced Lin-Manuel Miranda. Can you imagine <laughs> being... Can you imagine the child he was being told that this was going to happen to him? Would yeah. you have believed that of yourself if someone had told you that? And I I just just a few months ago I saw a clip, I happened to see a clip of the I think it was a poetry an evening of poetry and music where at the White House where yep. Miranda from eight years uh, ago. I watched that right after it happened, too. So I've been waiting for Hamilton for eight years. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it really surprised me because by the time I saw it, Hamilton was a sensation. And so he comes on stage and announces casually that he's writing a hip-hop musical about Alexander Hamilton. And the whole audience laughs really hard. And it does sound like a joke. And And this is something I have been... This is an idea I've been trying to internalize for quite some time now, uh, that no premise is ludicrous in itself, that the execution is the only thing that matters. Um, I, I feel like we're going to talk about this more when we discuss genre shows later, and then probably again when we talk about the Americans. But there have been so many ideas and so many shows and so many movies that I have scoffed at because they sound really dumb. They sound like obviously stupid ideas. But then the execution makes them my favorite thing. I mean, Hannibal. I laugh yep. hard at the idea of Hannibal, even though I like Brian Fuller. I like him a lot more now. Yeah. Uh, I was like vocally anti-Hannibal uh, uh, when it was first announced, despite loving Brian Fuller, just like you. I laughed at the idea so hard and now I think it is probably the best incarnation of any of Thomas Harris's work that we're ever going to see. I can't imagine anything surpassing it. I did the same thing with Fargo. I said, really? That's that's a show we're going to watch? And I'm glued to it. I love it. So I really can't dismiss shows based on the premise or films or musicals or books or anything just based on the premise because the premise isn't the important part it's it's the content that matters mm -hmm. i scoffed at uncle buck the idea of uncle buck for a split second when i first heard about it and then i thought well wait a minute because lots of things surpass their premise and my favorite the in fact the only family sitcoms that i watch right now are of families of color so why would this be any different from blackish or fresh off the boat why would this not sit up there with those shows as something i look forward to every week and so i withheld my opinion until i saw a little bit of it and then i saw a little bit of it <laughs> we'll get there we'll get there um, but yeah, 
Uh, don't know that I would extend it to Uncle Buck, but I do think that the that I think that's a great point, and I actually think it's a really convenient way to jump to our next show, which is OJ Made in America, because after the, the last year, it's like, oh, they're doing two different OJ things. Come on. Are you kidding? <laughs> Nobody cares. And then the, the uh, you know, American crime story, uh, People versus O.J. Simpson, was amazing. And I was like, okay, we've already had American crime story. Do we really need a five-part, like, two hours for each part thing about O.J.? And the answer is yes, we do, because <laughs> it is amazing. It is so great, because it takes these – it's not just about – O.J. Simpson is very much made in America. That part of the title is essential because it's looking at the sociology of where he grew up, of L.A., looking back at not just saying, oh, and the Rodney King thing had, you know, had just happened. They, they It goes in depth at the police department, at these different lawyers, at like the, the history of betrayal in the community, the African-American community in L.A. Uh, with the cops, not just Rodney King, but several other significant things that were happening around that time it 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 is really looking at how did this happen in a way that i it's hard to think of any other media i've seen that takes this kind of approach and the like to the point where it's actually almost infuriating to listen to these interviews with people when i'm like you're you're obviously we have hindsight now but can you not hear what you're saying what what you're saying that you experienced this guy saying and doing how did you not know of course this is where this had to be headed um but of course that's the beauty of hindsight uh i was very relieved when it turned out some of the people that they were interviewing who had been friends of oj had refused to be on his defense had taken the family's side um uh i was like okay good so then i don't have to just be angry at you the whole time because you didn't support and help OJ get off but um anyways but but the 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 documentary seen the first three parts it's tremendous uh I absolutely recommend everyone if you are at all interested in any of the topics surrounding um OJ OJ Simpson um if you liked the the FX series check it out it's amazing look at it looks at all the different topics that got touched on in like one episode of the FX series and it looks at them with pointing to specific facts, taking archival footage, talking heads, all the really standard elements of documentary. Uh, but it's incredibly well well done. And again, like you said, it's not the premise, it's the execution, and it's incredibly well executed. So I'm really looking forward to watching the last two parts of that. I'll have thoughts on those next week. But now we're going to move on to the comedy portion of our week in TV, and that starts with another period, slightly different than the Tony Awards or OJ Made in America. Uh, Emily, how are you with, how do you feel about the first season of, of Another Period and what did you think of this premiere? I have enjoyed Another Period tremendously. You know, I covered Downton Abbey for the AV Club. So <laughs> I have studied, I have studied Downton Abbey a little more um, in depth than I might otherwise have. And Another Period was a huge reward for having done that. Congratulations for having survived, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, another period is great. I love it. I, I love it. I don't have a lot more to say about it than <laughs> that. Um, uh, I will say that Latoya Ferguson's coverage of it for the AV Club is fantastic. And I'm so pleased she's doing it. Uh, I don't have enough experience with reality shows themselves to 
to bring much to that side of it, but uh, just just the experience of watching reality show parodies seems to have fleshed out all of my need for reality shows themselves. I don't need them. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm less on board with another period. I, I can see what it's doing and I appreciate it, but it doesn't compel me to come back and watch it every week. So like if I catch it and it's on, fine. And I, it's, I really enjoy this cast. I mean, the entire cast is a group of people who I think are really funny and very talented. So I'm glad they're all they're all getting paychecks. Um, the, the I will say that the having Harriet Tubman be a character on this mostly made me want to go back and watch Octavia Spencer's Harriet Tubman uh, Drunk History, which is <laughs> one of my favorite like things she's ever done or just like episodes of drunk history or just of comedy central shows i really love that episode um and and i thought this one this was a solid premiere and certainly i think the most fun i've had with the show i've only watched a handful of episodes here and there but i did think it was a solid premiere so i'm glad that you're so uh you're enjoying it so much um and that you have some uh you know a way to channel your years of experience and deep dives with downton abbey because I think I would have just like pulled my hair out if I had had to cover that. Um, we, we, we jumped ship here on the Televerse in Down Abbey, like I think season two. Definitely by season three, yeah. we were like spotlight of shaming it. <laughs> so uh, I can't imagine having stuck through to the end. So I doff my magic cap, Emily. I have to admit, I only covered, I think the last two seasons of it. The Still. Club. Uh, someone else was covering, uh, uh, Sonia was covering it before I was. But yes, to cover that stuff in depth. The nice thing about, covering the show is that I had to look at it carefully enough to see both what was valuable about it and what wasn't. <laughs> so I think I may, I think this might be the kind of thing where seeing how carefully they frame stuff actually, again, the execution is more important than the content, that seeing how things are filmed and staged and set gave me a deeper appreciation for a show that I might otherwise have dismissed as just fluff. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Uh, but yes. Anyways, another period. Entertaining. Glad these ladies, uh, meaning Natasha Legero and Ricky Lindholm, were able to get uh, a, a second season for the show. And maybe I will keep watching it um, because it was it was a much more solid premiere for me than than the, the season one premiere. So at least that's my two cents. I'm going to move on to our next show, which is Wrecked on TBS, which is a lost parody and spoof um all is not lost is the premiere and rest in peace Callaway Hinkle is the second episode for me uh, I thought this was actually I had so much fun with this and that's because I'm a massive lost fan as will surprise very few of our listeners and certainly no one who's listened to the DVD shelf we did back several years ago now with with Mo Ryan about lost but uh it's sort of odd for me to see a show that literally it just is a very specific parody of Lost. I mean, there's other elements in there of like hangout comedy and just looking at interpersonal dynamics that are be very familiar that aren't necessarily specific to Lost. But there's a lot of really direct parallels. So I don't really know how this got made, but I had I had a lot of fun with it. So um, I mean, and just you have Reese Darby being Reese Darby. I'm gonna have fun no matter what else is in an episode. So uh, I think just my affinity for the cast and um, certainly for the source material. Is you know when they have the the handsome British f- former special forces guy who's like saving everyone and being amazing until he gets smushed by a plane in the pilot. Um, I thought that was a really delightful way to start, kick things off, and uh, I don't know how much it can necessarily sustain. I don't know how long a show like this can go, but I thought it, I just had a surprising amount of fun with these first two. I would have dismissed it 
um, upon here or upon the premise like we've been talking about. But I think they, you know, they just have so much fun with it. It's just so goofy. And I'm all I'm just completely here for the TBS as the home of goofy comedy, like with Andrew Tribeca and stuff. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually surprisingly on board with Wrecked. Have you even heard of this one? I've heard of it. I have been saving it. I haven't seen it. And then I didn't realize we were going to be covering it today. So uh, I have a question for you. I enjoyed Lost tremendously. My husband, with whom I watch most of my TV, we're both TV critics, I think hasn't seen very much Lost. Would Wrecked be comprehensible to someone who isn't oh, yeah. familiar with Lost? Okay. Yeah, no, you don't have to worry about that. Like, it's, you're going to see, because Lost has so many archetypes, um in its in its characters um in which then of course they get very fleshed out over the course of the series even just in the first handful of episodes you get a lot more depth but because it is so driven um by these distinct types those are more universal ideas that so it just obviously he's a t- tv critic he's gonna be familiar with these like this person is the jerk this is the bickering couple this is the kind of crazy badass um th- they'll be you know like that That they'll be very accessible so i mean there will be specific things that you will go hee 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 and he won't know he won't know what you're talking about but um but i think he'll be fine well that's that's the hallmark of a good parody is that it it is watchable and entertaining for someone who isn't familiar or at least is intimately familiar with the source material that it brings extra jokes to someone who is instead of taking jokes away from someone who isn't yeah and it's one of those things where like the 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 steps that the survivors the castaways go through um in lost are very logical of like first they do this and then they do this and then they do that and so when the same beats are played out um in wrecked it just kind of makes sense that that's what you would do if you were crush on an island or whatever um so the fact that it's also referencing lost isn't not you know it's not dependent upon that because it just it's not like they're doing super out of character things or things that don't necessarily make sense because you know when they did when the characters did them on lost they made sense so they also make sense when they do them here i i i have to take issue with the idea that when the characters did stuff on lost it made sense i have in the first days in the first days of, of the crash like you know waiting for the boat to come and then it's not coming so we should try to get a phone call out or we should go see if we can find the black box and you know but you're right later on not so much how blue can I go on this podcast? Oh, as much as you want. You have your full All range right. of expression. My entire, everything I feel about Lost in a Nutshell is that these are the least communicating motherfuckers on the planet. <laughs> there are too many problems where if one person had said to another person, oh, this bizarre thing just happened to me, the other person's problems would be over. It's too many mysteries that could be solved by one person behaving like a human being to another person i I, i'll be interested to see whether wrecked picks up on that particular dynamic that runs through so many seasons of lost and plays with it because that's it's it's defining characteristic that could certainly could get a lot of mileage out of that if they wanted to actually that uh uh, that sounds yeah you could they could have a lot of fun with that uh it doesn't come up in these first two but yeah that's actually an entertaining uh uh, concept. So I would, I would hope that they would key into that. So we'll see, we'll see. With uh, if I, I don't know if I'll follow this, and maybe I'll like wait till the end of the season and binge it. But, um, but yeah, that's I'm look, I'm gonna be hoping that they do that now. So, yeah, interesting, <laughs> interesting. Um, next up is Uncle Buck. Uh, I watched the pilot for this back, you know, when it was maybe gonna be in the fall. Uh, so this is one where I don't, I just don't 
care. But I Mike Epps, I really enjoy. I've you know had a lot of fun catching up with Survivor's Remorse, um, and he's a big part of that show for me. Uh, that's coming back soon for its third season, I want to say. Um, and so when when I found out he had another show, I was like, oh yay, okay, let's go check it out. It's fine. It's you know. Is crazy Uncle Buck, he's going to move in with the, with them. And is he a good influence or a bad influence on the kids? Um, it's very, I, I, I don't know, maybe the second episode is worse. But I, I thought it was just very nondescript and just kind of uh, typical, very typical uh, family kind of getting into hijinks, getting out of hijinks kind of uh, pilot. Um, but people seem a lot harsher on it than, than I am. So maybe there's something they know that I don't in the second episode. But I thought it was sort of, Fair enough. There's better TV on. There's a lot better TV on. But, you know, I can see why, why if people like this cast or they have a particular affinity or they're like they're looking for other family sitcoms on during the summer. Why not? Is sort of how I'm at, how I'm at, where I'm at with Uncle Buck. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's, it's not anything new, not anything groundbreaking and um, not necessarily worth your time. But I think there is worse stuff you could be watching. Is how's that for just like a very meh response, it's Emily? Warm, which it seems like Uncle Buck isn't getting a lot of lukewarm reception, so that seems generous. There we go. There we go. Well, let's move on to our next show because I, I am I'm talking too much, so I need to take a break. So, Emily, uh, why don't you let us know where are you at with uh, Mindy Project? The Mindy Project. This is season four, episode twenty three. So they've got a lot longer seasons over there on Hulu now. Uh, this is There's No Crying in Softball. And I haven't watched Mindy Project for a few years. So can you just give me in a like a few sentences? What? what how did they break up? Mindy <laughs> and Danny. And did it feel legit? Or was it just like, well, Chris and Cena, we can't afford him anymore. So bye bye. Uh, I think their relationship succumbed to actor unavailability emergency. I mean, I, I don't I don't remember how they broke up. And that is not a good sign because I have watched every episode of The Mindy Project <laughs> some, twice. They have a kid. It should take a lot to break them up. They have a kid. Uh, I, I don't even know where to start talking about Mindy and Danny. Um. Okay, well it's, then let's just talk about this episode, I guess. It's a it's a mess over there, man. It's just a mess. I The Mindy Project used to be a show about a doctor who was great at her job and kind of incompetent, amusingly incompetent at her life. And now it's about someone who behaves however the joke needs her to behave. And I find it I find it kind of depressing, but I keep watching it for some reason. Um, this episode was fun. <laughs> I, I liked it. I liked, uh, boy, is it Jay Ferguson? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jay Ferguson as, um, as her new possible boyfriend. She actually identifies him as her boyfriend in this episode. Um, I think the idea of having a, a guy who's regularly appearing in her life, but who lives out of town seems like a pretty, pretty fertile ground for the Mindy project because it gives her plenty of time to be on her own, but also brings him back without having to make an excuse every time. So that would be good. Um, it's, it's going to be hard to come in and fill Christmasina's shoes. He, he was great. He and Mindy Kaling have great chemistry. Uh, he's very entertaining. He, he played, he used to play Danny as this button down guy who had a few little freaky secrets and, 
And he was really cute about it. And then Danny turned into a massive jerk and then the show had to wave him off. And it's just a mess. Fair enough. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, that uh, I'm not surprised based on um, just the realities that come with a, I would assume much great, like much slashed budget. And um, also Chris Messina is fantastic. So I'm not surprised if he wanted to move on to new, new, a new character and, you know, have some new artistic challenges. Um, it is a shame because like you said, Danny and Mindy were terrific together when they were not <laughs> arguing so that they can have a reason for the two to break up. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly uh, would have appreciated if he was still on. Like I, I would have liked his energy on the show, but I, I thought this was a solid episode. Um, Jay Ferguson, you know, I always appreciate him. I'm glad that he is working so far consistently after Mad Men has gone off the air. Um, and I, I think just like it's a very familiar premise here of like the, the company softball game. Um, but I thought, you know, as for familiar territory, they did a pretty good job with it. I'm always glad that Garrett, Garrett Dillahunt is working. Um, so having him play like sort of a different kind of character than maybe what I'm used to him playing here was, was kind of interesting. Um, and yeah, I was able, I was used to just kind of drop back in with, with the show. Um, and I also, I gotta say, I do appreciate that she's got a kid. But it hasn't really changed the show very much. And I did see a tweet um, a while back from Mindy Kaling saying, like, people ask her, where is where's the kid? She had a kid. Where's the kid? She's like, is, it's off playing with uh, all those other male-driven comedies. <laughs> it's wherever their kids are when they're at work. Uh, which, which brilliant answer. It's perfect. And that's the kind of thing that keeps me watching The Mindy Project. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so this didn't blow my socks off, but I thought it was fine. It was solid. And for a show that's gone through as much change as this one has, I think that's, there are worse things that could be said, uh, or like that there, are, it could be in much worse shape than it is. So uh, all things considered, uh, B plus, B plus yeah. an indie project. I'm going to say though, some of that change is structural, like having Chris Messina be less available than he has been. And, and apparently he's I think he's signed on for recurring status for the next season. Mm -hmm. So he'll still be in the world, but he won't be in every episode. But Garrett Dillahunt has been there all the time and they haven't been able to decide what to do with the romance between her and between Mindy and Jody. There've been a, will they, won't they thing, but it gets dropped every couple of weeks. And I'm not, I don't particularly want it, but I want the show to know what its plan is for it. (laughs) And that's not, coming across if you're watching it episodically or if you're just you know dropping in after several years not watching like me there was like one moment where i was like oh are there is there like a thing there when he you know she had said that this was her boyfriend there was like a slight reaction from dillahunt uh so it made me curious about that um but yeah certainly just watching this episode i would not have assumed that was a story point in the show so huh interesting and then it gets dropped and then it comes up again and then it gets dropped and it's it's been, it's just a mess. Fair enough. Well, not a mess, or maybe a delightful mess, is Comedy Bang Bang. Tegan and Sarah wear leather jackets and skinny jeans. Now, I've seen uh, two, maybe three now, episodes of Comedy <laughs> Bang Bang. It's currently in its fifth season. Uh, and yet, the, the ha- episode I happen to watch for this uh, is, is a Vertigo parody um, so I just, this was the right week for me to watch it. Cause I love, I'm sorry, rear window, not vertigo, rear window. Uh, and I, I love rear window. So this was just kind of strange and wonderful. <laughs> now, how typical is this of a comedy bang bang episode? 
Uh, typical and not typical. They, you know, they they typically structure the show just as a talk show, and then they do forays into other reality genres like dating shows or home improvement shows. But every so often they'll go all in on a concept episode like this one. And sometimes they're just killer. Um, I loved this episode. This is, this is certainly my favorite of the season so far. And it's been a fast season because IFC is running the episodes back to back. Uh, so we're getting two every Friday night. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes that I've had a chance to review. It's got so much Hitchcock content. You you name-checked uh, Vertigo, and you're right. You're, you're not wrong about that. It is a rear window parody, but they name-check Psycho in the opening, and then the credits are Vertigo and, let's see, uh, North by Northwest, and I think The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, there are all kinds of other Hitchcock references through there. The rooftop uh, symphony scene mm-hmm. is obviously it's a riff on the birds, but the orchestral playing is a riff on, um, oh boy, is it the man who knew too much? The remake with Doris Day and Jimmy Stewart. Uh, it just, I thought it was a really fun episode and for a concept episode to nail everything so very well as they do here is it's impressive. It's impressive. Yeah. No, the, when I finally, it took me way too long to catch into what they were doing. I was like, Oh, I don't remember the credits being like this, but okay. I guess why wouldn't they be? I mean, it's a very, it's a fabulous style. And so like it took, I didn't notice until like he's in a chair, the wheelchair, like till I noticed he was in the wheelchair, that's when I realized what they were doing. So just like the pajamas, that should have immediately given it away. Somehow didn't. I was not being perceptive. Uh, but yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with this one. And like, this is just completely in my wheelhouse. There was a, a summer when I was down at U of I and because um, where I went to school and uh, all of my friends were gone for the summer or at different camps or, you know, different programs and things. Uh, so I was just spending all of my time practicing uh, and watching movies. And so there's a summer where like I watched a different Hitchcock movie every day because <laughs> they were in the cheap section of the wonderful independent movie uh rental place that is unfortunately no longer down there that's for entertainment um so i just have a real soft space in my heart for for alfred hitchcock so yeah uh i don't again i don't know that i'm interested in the regular episode of comedy bang bang but i sure love this one (laughs) the thing is there really isn't such a thing as a regular episode of comedy (laughs) they aren't all as ambitiously conceptual as this one is but none of them are just a straight up talk show they just employ the rhythms of a straight up talk show to make fun of talk shows to make a sort of absurdist surrealist comedy but yeah if this is the third episode you've ever seen it's not terribly surprising that you missed the initial cues that this was going to be a rear window riff like one of the things i noticed immediately is that scott wasn't wearing a sweater he always wears a sweater just just it would be as if mr rogers came into his house and instead of taking off his jacket and putting on a sweater he took off his jacket and put on pajamas it was just that jarring to see him sitting there in pajamas for me because i've been watching it for five seasons now <laughs> yeah interesting well I'm, I'm do you then do you think i should if i had so much fun with this should i check be checking in with comedy bang bang more frequently 
you might check in on a couple of episodes here and there and see if it's your thing. I can absolutely see how it might not be someone's thing. And <laughs> this is another one that's right on theme. When I heard Comedy Bang Bang was getting a TV show, I said, really? <laughs> because the podcast is this free form, long form improv session. And you really can't do that on television. It has to be pretty self-contained and you can't go on. Well, they've managed to, but it's harder to go on elaborate flights of fancy when you're, you know, you're showing things on camera. It's a lot easier to do that when people are just improvising into a mic. Uh, but it works. At least it works for me. So it might be worth dipping in a few more times at random to see if it works for you, too. Mm -hmm. uh, and no hard feelings if it doesn't, because it doesn't for a lot of people. So I, I'll have to keep my eyes open for your reviews and start checking in more. Um, you know, I review it back to back with LaToya. So uh -huh. you can read hers. You can read mine. You can see what you like. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, uh, our next shows here are more traditionally my beat. Uh, so I, I think I can contribute a little bit more to the conversation. How are you feeling about Silicon Valley, Bachman's Earnings Override? Which, can we just, like, I love that title. That's an awesome title. <laughs> I do love the title. I didn't even notice the title until I, until I saw the list of shows we were covering. That's a great title. What did you think? I thought... I'm not sure why I'm still watching this show. It's beautifully constructed. It's so well-performed. It's really funny. And I I don't like anyone except Jared. <laughs> I'm really starting to wonder why I'm supposed to be sympathetic to these people who keep f***ing themselves so hard while they're f***ing other people. It's, <laughs> it's very upsetting. That's one of the most upsetting things well, I was going to say that I've seen on television this week, but of course that's not true this Damn week. Close. But yeah. Now, does that extend to you for uh, Dinesh and Guilfoyle? Yes! See, because I just love them. I, I've really almost run out of sympathy even for them. Fair enough. And I think that's particularly because I haven't run out of empathy for them. I feel them so hard, but I don't want to feel that. <laughs> It's very difficult to watch. I what did you think of it? I thought I had fun with it. Um, I like, I liked that they are truly humbling, um, Bachman. Uh, in in these those last couple episodes, I liked that it wasn't just that he sold his shares because I I wondered about that last week. I was like, okay, but why couldn't he just sell some of his shares? Surely he's not so far in debt he would need to sell all of them and they answered that very very quickly here i love that he doesn't spend the episode angry or um uh ranting about getting completely screwed on his sale uh not being able to make anywhere near what he should be able to make even before they went public with his shares because he just ex accepts that this is his own fault and he, you know I, which is not the level of maturity i would not have expected from that character um so Hopefully he will now, he's been humbled, he will have his uh, head a bit more out of his ass, and they will move forward with him still being Bachman, but having, um, having matured in some way, having like learned something from this lesson and theoretically approaching um, the other people um, in his incubator 
or at Pied Piper with a bit more respect and um and you know I think have, seeing him actually have to do a job uh there's a lot of potential there he needs to do a good job though he needs to do it well or else I'll get frustrated pretty quickly so I, I was enjoying that part of it I just because Dinesh and Guilfoyle are usually like their sparring is pointed almost exclusively at each other um I can and they don't treat other people poorly most of the time I can uh still enjoy them but I see where you know that can get a little old and just the jacket was just like <laughs> it was it was just mwah, the costume design of that I mean it's amazing the, the the rats along the sleeves were my favorite detail um because of course Pied Piper <laughs> but um in, in the way that that comes back at the tag with uh Dinesh doing karaoke uh was a really just really fun uh, I'm having I, I do have after a while I have trouble with uh the middle ditch character um, he can, cause he gets so myopic, um, yep. that can be a little frustrating. And do you have any thoughts on something we were talking about last week, uh, with, with Caroline Sita, also the AV club who, who sat in for Noel last week about the show as sexist, not as in like, it's, it's poor passing a moral judgment on it, but because they do not include women most of the time in most of the episodes, I mean, even, even just in this episode, they're interviewing a new candidate to be involved in Pied Piper and it has to be a white guy. Why can't that be a woman? Um, so Caroline feels that any show that she's watching at this point, if it's not including women and people of color in it, the show could be good, but it's good and also sexist or it's good and also racist. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have to agree that that's a thought I've had about Silicon Valley uh, over the years and, and still this season, that the women are, when they're, when they're there, they're often very calm, but they are largely absent. And I get that that's a demographic that is accurate to real life. But if being accurate to real life is how we cast all the shows, that's going to be a pretty boring universe of television shows. So yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, to that mm -hmm. idea. And uh, yes, I am also very frustrated with Richard, with the middle ditch character because he keeps, he keeps just boning himself every which way. Um, I, it's very frustrating episode after episode to see him walk into a room and make the mistake you know he's going to make and then have it revealed later that, oh, yes, he's made the mistake you knew he was going to make. I, I understand the dramatic tension that they're building with that, but it's exhausting. And I, I'm not sure that I... I'm lying. I'm going to stick around and watch it. Um, and, and it's because of resolutions like you described for this episode, where at the very end, it turns out that, that no one is being quite as childish and destructive as they seem to have been. And that is very sympathetic. That really, that did a lot to win me over in the last couple of minutes of the episode. At a point where I was genuinely thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to continue watching this. Not because it's not good. It's it's really good. It's really well crafted. But I you know this dilemma. We we have to keep up with TV. It's part of our job. And even if you're not getting paid to write about the show, you're getting paid to think about it as part of the larger context. And sometimes you just have to cut stuff because you can't it into your schedule or you can't fit it into your well-being and mm -hmm. silicon valley is was starting to 
head toward that territory for me. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah. At a certain point, you look at yourself and say, I'm not watching other things because I'm watching this. And every time I watch it, it's making me feel this way. Um, and so instead of decrying a television landscape where this is what is on it, on TV, this is what's celebrated, this is what's discussed, I should be seeking out and watching the good stuff that is out there that does address my concerns that, and talking about that and raising the profile of that. Um, so I think that's an excellent, an excellent point. Um, yeah. I will see. There's only a couple episodes less, left this season, so I'm interested to see how they end the season, mm-hmm. um, where all this heads to. But certainly, um, yeah. And having having Huli, uh, you know, take a new new direction, I think, is also an interesting development that I'm hoping will have some fun they'll have some fun with the next couple episodes but um but we should move on to veep because i'm curious what you think about this i think a lot of people were a lot kinder to to veep this week than than i was i I say kind i give it a b plus b minus i think but um the episode is camp david um how did you feel about this episode um i i liked it more than you did (laughs) i Mm -hmm. i will say that again it was really excruciating to watch although at no point did i think oh i'm not showing up for this next time (laughs) Uh, i i think i liked it more than you did just because i really embraced the farcical aspect of it that it really it really is staged literally as a farce with people coming in doors and leaving doors and mistaking people for other people and and the setup is so so fast that that you see and this is the exact opposite of what I was just complaining about with Richard on Silicon Valley, that you can see the mistakes about to happen. You can see the uh, world leader giving Selena the silk embroidered jacket, and you know exactly what's going to happen with that. You see that the the Secret Service agent who was hired in part because she physically resembles Selena showing up as Selena's daughter's girlfriend and you know the mistake that's going to happen. And in this case, the anticipation is intentional and it's baked in through the entire episode. It really worked for me in a way that I don't think it worked for you and and I can see why not. See, I wanted it to go all in with the farce. It's like if you're going to if you're going to do the farce thing, I want there to be four doors that people are going in and out of. I want there to be like escalating tensions. I want this to be if you're going to be an episode of Frasier, be an episode of Frasier. I I adore like that ski lodge episode of Frasier. I love it. It's so great. And I love a farce. I love like the lies to this person, to that person. And this person doesn't know that that person knows this thing with that. I mean, like the um, the back and forth with um uh friends they don't know that we know that they know with the laundry and everything i mean like i i love that stuff and so i was starting to really get into that element of it and then they just have me to walk over and talk to Catherine and diffuse everything and then it becomes like so for me it, it i had a little trouble with the tone of this one because i didn't feel like it fully committed to the farce so f- that was a bit of a barrier for me i also um i, I all the stuff that the guest cast got to do was really terrific, but I was missing the main cast. Why were they all there? Why was Sue there? She didn't need to be there. Like, give Sue Bradshaw the week off, you know, if you're not going to use her. Like, why is Mike there? I guess in case there's any changes they need to, like, draft in person, but, like, Kent got nothing to do. Like, because 
they had all these fantastic characters there and all these incredibly talented actors there and then gave them very little to do because really it was again the selena show as it has been for the last several episodes and i mean when you've got julia Louis dreyfus why wouldn't you you know she's amazing but um for me i wanted them to either use or not include more of the cast so that they could then spend that time elsewhere like amy got nothing to do what what are amy and dan doing why are they there like jeff has proven himself to be utterly incompetent at his job after seasons seasons of buildup of how brilliant he is he's terrible he didn't do anything to get to get jonah elected the nra did it and neither did dan and neither did amy and so at the end when we have this realization of horror on their faces of oh what especially dan what have i done it's like you actually didn't do anything the nra made this happen um so while it was really entered like there's a lot of really great beats i was having trouble with what but with the characters not getting to be involved enough in the action and that was for me both at jonah's headquarters and then also um out at camp david i don't know if you have any thoughts on that you know, I, I read that in your review, and I, I have to admit that's a really good point about undermining the competence and usefulness of both the characters and the actors, but I hadn't noticed it while I was watching it. I think just because I was so busy Laughing? Because it's so funny? Oh, no. Oh, no. I wasn't laughing. I was just, I was wailing. I was, I was going, oh, no. It was so excruciating to watch it happen. It was, it was, it was like a farce mixed with an appendectomy. It was just, it was so painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that, that's, that's the thing for me. Cause, and this is the trouble when I'm reviewing beat, because even an episode that I, I'm less fond of is still really funny. Yeah. So it's like, that's why I was like, uh, I, as I was writing it, I kept, I, it, you know you know when you're writing a review and sometimes um, you go in just sort of middling on it and then as you write you yeah. realize how you feel about it <laughs> so as I was writing I was feel, getting more and more like wait why is this and this but at, when I was watching it initially I was laughing at so much like anything with Minna for example uh, that I wasn't noticing these other things and so then as I started to dive in with it more and really break it break it apart more to write about it that's when it started to bother me so even even when I have these issues a, a, an episode of Veep I connect less with is still one of the funniest things on TV that we guaranteed. <laughs> Absolutely true. And and this is the difference, I think, between watching something as a viewer and watching it as a critic. And, and that's true even for other critics, that if you're not taking it apart into its components so that you can analyze it, discuss it, write about it, you may be a lot more forgiving of something than you would otherwise be. I enjoyed that. Ep well, enjoyed is, is a gentler <laughs> word. I laughed hard at that episode and I experienced a lot of emotion watching it. And then I was done. I stopped because it was painful to think about it. So I didn't want to, I just moved on to the next thing. Yeah. And you didn't have that luxury. Yeah, but I I know that the the commenters were stronger on the episode than I was in general. Um, but I just figure, you know, I can't give everything an A. I can't give everything a B plus. There needs to be a little variety, and now I've left a little more space. So hopefully, uh, with the with the final two episodes of the season, when I give them higher grades, assuming that I enjoy them more, it will mean more. So that's all. I'm, that's how I'm sort of leaving Veep in my mind. Uh, certainly, I think it's been a terrific season. Um, and I'm really excited for, for how it's going to end. I can't even imagine how it's going to end. 
Oh no. Well, she's got to she's got to win the election. It's got to uh, right because otherwise she's out of politics and there's already there's going to be another season. So how she's going to win and what what Jonah makes her agree to in the last moments before the vote, you know, to secure his support could be a lot of fun. I, I hadn't noticed until exactly this moment. Veep is one of the few shows where I never try to predict what's going to happen beyond the next episode. I, I hadn't thought about that. I do this pretty regularly and, and with enough accuracy that my husband has accused me of being a witch. Uh, <laughs> that it's, you know, if if you can see the tracks that are being laid down, it's not that hard to guess where a character's arc is going, even even a season or two ahead. But I have never tried to predict what's going to happen on Veep because maybe maybe just because I can't and maybe because they're all so terrible at predicting what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it really might not be worth it. I just hope uh, Mike makes it out alive now that he's going to have three kids. Yeah, that's a lot so. of kids. <laughs> oh, poor Mike. He's having the worst season. Um, anyways, let's move on to our next show. We're going super long in comedy this week, but um, we're still going to leave some time here to talk about Full Frontal with Samantha B. Because I said for me, the number one thing I watched all week was the Senate filibuster. The number two thing I watched all week uh, was Samantha B. on Monday. Yep. It was amazing and exactly like... The, the thing that kept being repeated in the filibuster that I 100% agree with is this idea that thoughts and prayers are useless without action. And that was first voiced for me, outside of what I was thinking, on Full Frontal. Um, it was passionate. It was uh, righteous. And I, I, I just it was exactly what I needed on Monday. How did you feel about it? Yes, I agree completely. That was... That was absolutely something I needed to see and something that needed to be said. And and particularly the way that she said it, her voice was shaking with anger. And that is an appropriate response to the ongoing disaster that is gun laws in the U.S. Anger is the only sane response to have to that. And it was weirdly gratifying to see her voice it. Um, for me... You know, we were all very sad when Jon Stewart retired from The Daily Show, or many of us were very sad when Jon Stewart retired from The Daily Show. But I have to say, I I don't miss him as much as I expected to, partly because he was so clearly ready to go, and partly because we have John Oliver and we have Samantha Bee. And they are filling that slot for me in my week. Um, you know, I loved having The Daily Show nightly but it turns out that i'm just as happy to wait a week to see what sam b and john oliver have to say um because that gives them time to really come up with a nuanced approach to an ongoing story stories don't have to be on a 24-hour cycle which is the way that the daily show had to have them uh i felt the same way about uh i don't know if you ever saw w kamau bell's uh Totally biased, it was called. Totally biased, yeah. Yeah. And I, I felt the same way about that. And then we got to see what happened when it went to nightly episodes or daily episodes. I can't remember. That this smart, thoughtful, carefully constructive, incisive content necessarily got diluted because, of course, it did. Because five shows a week or four shows a week is a lot more than one show a week. Um, so... 
I like the idea that they exist and I like the the content that they're turning out and I like that it is a week's worth of anger or concern or curiosity condensed into a half an hour. Um, even more than that, one of the one of the surprising side effects for me at least and, and maybe for you about having Samantha B host the show, you know, there's been a lot of abstract talk about more female voices and how few female voices there are in late night. But particularly, I just started noticing that in addition to being just a smart, savvy, penetrating voice about specific political and social issues, Samantha B's literal voice matters to me. That, that her presence on TV is recalibrating what the voice of righteous anger sounds like. That her voice, when she was talking about Orlando, sometimes it shook. And sometimes it pitched high. And sometimes it sounded like she was about to burst into tears, which is something that happens to me when I am furious. That's what I sound like when I am righteously infuriated. And her voice sounds more like mine than any other voice I've ever heard speak this way on television. And that makes a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's changed what I expect the voice of anger to sound like. And I'm very grateful for that. We're in a culture that dismisses the, the opinions and views and passions of women, uh, young women, but especially, but women in general mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Just look at what has been going on Twitter. Like the, there's been a lot of um, anti Kim Kardashian stuff on, on Twitter today as we record. Um, despite her being an incredibly savvy businesswoman who's built up an entire empire um, because she's a woman, because, because of how she's marketed herself and the fact that she is a woman. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, you know, not only is it okay for there to be a tremble in her voice, there'd be something wrong with her if there wasn't. Um, and I think that... Again, so many different shows. I mean, pretty much every show had to, who didn't, like every nightly show or like late night show had to respond in some way. And I knew that on most of them, it would be thoughts and prayers. It would be moments of silence. And I knew that with Samantha B, she doesn't have any patience or any time for silence. Mm-hmm. And that was what I needed to hear i needed to know that it wasn't just me feeling that way it's not like i needed her to tell me it was okay to be angry but i needed to my what i was feeling to to be reflected and to know that i wasn't the only one feeling that way and certainly to to see a high profile person with a platform say this is fucking bullshit and there's something we can do about it and here's exactly what we can do about it and you know here's who you should call here's what you can do um so yeah i i'm like you said I'm not missing Jon Stewart uh, because I have Samantha B to fill one portion of what he used to do, which is much more passionate, much more uh, sarcastic, much more cutting, and John Oliver to do another side of things, which is to explore. Um, you know, they're, they're both they're doing similar things in very different ways as befits their personality, and I feel like John Oliver also gets a lot more freedom to do what he's doing because he knows Sam B is there too. So that he doesn't have to try to be, he could, he could, he could, you know, we'll see what he does next week. But, um, 
they didn't try to like pull his show and do a completely different show after Orlando on Sunday night. Um, and I think that's because he doesn't feel the pressure that he needs to be that that successor to Jon Stewart because he knows that he's not the only one in that vein. Yeah, I agree completely. And I have to admit, I was not entirely sold on Samantha Bee having a late night show. I mean, I thought it was a great idea. I I remember saying, you know, a whole half hour of B might be a lot. And it turns out that it is a lot in exactly the right way for me. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful to watch her. Yeah. Yep. Well, we're going to pivot now to a woman I, I normally would be all about having a half hour of her uh but every week but i'm actually been very underwhelmed and that's amy schumer inside amy schumer was one of my favorite shows last year this year season four uh i was uh less enamored with certain high spots but in general certainly not as interested in this season as it was in season three which i think was the breakthrough for for that for that show uh this was rubbing our clips which was a clip show and also the season finale. The season finale, only nine episodes a season. They specifically referenced that in this episode about how they were doing eight episodes and then phoning in a ninth instead of doing ten episodes. Which makes me wonder, is there something going on behind the scenes that we just don't know about? Like, this feels very odd and the show, but it also feels like they're aware of it, you know? I don't know. What, what, do, you, what do you make of this? I, <laughs> I have a complicated take on this. Um, I... I try to I try not to cross the streams in the parlance of Ghostbusters. I try to view each episode of television, you know, based on the text. It's a very academic approach, based on the text and not based on the necessarily on the persona or on the backroom deals, even though those do affect the content of any given episode of TV. Um, I don't know how much of I don't know how much truth there is in the joke that they made in rubbing our clips, the season ending clip show that, yeah, that this is an obligatory clip show or that she had only agreed to do nine episodes phoning the ninth one in eight episodes and you'll phone the ninth one in. Um, I mentioned, I mentioned in our email that I had had a very brief Twitter conversation with Amy Schumer she she added the AV club, but not me, uh, saying, saying, thanks for the review. I had given her the best review I've given her this season because it was a great episode. And it was great in part by virtue of not making a lot of reference to her fame. And she asked if someone could point out how the other episodes did refer to her fame because she didn't see it. And okay. that, that really surprised me because it seemed until that moment, I, I had believed that it was an intentional statement on the part of inside Amy Schumer's writer's room. It was yeah. real to imagine that it wasn't. She calls up Lin-Manuel Miranda and has him come see her pitch in the yeah. season premiere. Like, wow. Yes. And I responded, you know, I again, I was working all day, so I didn't really have a lot of time to burn on this. But I responded with a series of links to different reviews, mine and also Mara Eakins, uh, talking about fame as part of the content of the episodes. And she 
seemed seemed satisfied with that. She she did suggest that I had projected that idea onto the clips rather than them existing within the context of the show. And that's fine, you know, different people see different things in everything. But it illuminated for me an aspect of the show that I didn't realize. I really thought that was a conscious, intentional statement they were making over and over and over again, in my view, to the detriment of the show. But I could understand and sympathize with why it became the content of the series all of a sudden. That she skyrocketed to fame, and the show is about her experiences, so the show has become about her experiences of being famous. Yeah, but apparently that's... That's, not, that's not a conscious choice. That's really interesting. I mean, like, the whole season, instead of having man-on-the-street interviews, she interviews her famous friends. Right. And I discussed that, and so does Mara in her preseason yeah. overview. Um, and I discussed it in my review of the season finale for the AV Club, that the clip show doesn't do any bar site interviews of famous friends. It only does on-the-street interviews with bypassers. And... And seeing those again, and particularly seeing Schumer's response to them, which is, it seems really unguarded and natural, even though most performances aren't natural and aren't unguarded. It's very, it feels very fresh and open, and it really electrified the previous seasons. And the change was inevitable. Like, she can't be pulling people aside for interviews on the streets. There will be a mob. But it still highlights a real loss to the show. And and that that's too bad. It's bittersweet to see that. Um I I I barely know how to respond to rubbing our clips, the season finale, because it's so jarring to have a clip show serve as the season finale. No matter how well constructed and and how much context that show provides and and it does it really does it uses a real housewives reunion format and it's clever it's smart if the whole show had just been the reunion it would have been a much more solid episode of tv but instead it's this real housewives style reunion hosted by andy cohen by the way of real Housewives, yeah. who's super uh, game and like really has is having it does a good job i would say yeah, he's he's great. I, I actually I don't watch Real Housewives except like I get a contact high off of someone who watches it once in a while. I'll be uh -huh. at someone's house and they'll be watching it or whatever. But the show itself is is, is really solid, but it's also, you know, it's half clips. And yeah. No, that like, you're so much kinder to this episode than I am. First of all, that thing, um, that interaction, um, however brief with Amy Schumer is really interesting to me. Uh, yeah, because I also would have pegged that the frequent references to her, her fame uh, were an intentional choice and discussion. Um, so that is very interesting. Um, and uh, and just and just like the, the changing reality of her life, not like, you know, she's talking about, oh, I'm so famous now. Like, that's not at all what yeah, she's doing or what the show's been doing. But um, one of what she's saying, what yeah. what what is coming over again and again, coming across again and again in season four is that being famous is different. Yeah. And no, not that's... always in a good way. Yeah. No, I, that, that's so interesting. But as for this episode, I mean, I 
if if someone's going to do a clip show, there needs to be a damn good reason. And I have no patience for clip shows. The the only clip show that I have seen that it's not from like the 80s or in early 90s or something uh, that I have any amount of patience for is the one that Legend of Korra did because they were obligated to add an, 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 another episode to their order um, uh, or cut like half their staff or something. Like <laughs> they had to either fire people or do a clip show episode. So they did a clip show episode and did it the best that they could. Made it as interesting as they could. Um, and the creator came out and told people that. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm still kind of like, but okay, fair enough. At least you were honest about why. I don't understand why they did a clip show. Uh, it felt like a waste of my time. I didn't think that the, the Real Housewives segments were particularly entertaining. I just, I like that they brought those actors in who are kind of like the regulars. That was kind of fun just to see them interact. But like, I was very, very much like, why am I, why am I watching this? Um, and if we weren't talking about it on the podcast, I probably would have stopped watching it. Because it was completely, like, there was nothing that was of, of interest to me in that episode. So you are much kinder to it than I am. <laughs> well, I think also just by virtue of reviewing the show, and, and Inside Amy Schumer has historically been one of my favorite sketch shows until this season, which also coincidentally is when I started reviewing it. Um, that never helps, does it? <laughs> well, no, you know, I don't think that's the problem. I don't think it's that I'm watching it more carefully because I, I had sat in on a review or two previous and and found it really entertaining and fun to watch and and, and rewarding to review. And it's this season, ha- there's been a definite dip in quality. Yeah. This has, this has for a long time been one of my favorite shows. And even though it's not necessarily the kind of humor I generally like, but I think it's always really, almost always, until this season, really well executed. Sometimes it's very off-putting. Uh, sometimes it's hard to watch. But I found it, I found it really smart. And this season has been a lot slacker. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, I wonder if um, if Schumer wouldn't benefit from a Louis style break. Uh, just like waiting until she, because because she, it felt like she found her voice so distinctly in the third season. Um, and reached a new level on the show. She had distinct things to say. Um, and she was saying them. Whereas this season felt more like she was stretching for ideas. So she had the beginnings of some, but then it wouldn't necessarily fall through. The sketches wouldn't necessarily... Um, I kept waiting for them to go hit like a next level. And they didn't necessarily. Um, and I mean, just doing any sketch show is a hit to miss ratio situation. As far as I'm concerned, there's just ones that'll work better than other ones, sketches that'll work better than other sketches. Um, and I can't imagine how draining it is creatively, uh, for any sketch artist. So, I mean, I would much rather have there be more time between seasons and have her have things to say and have that fuel her comedy, than feel like she's got to bring a new season because um, I because I'm more interested personally in Amy Schumer as a comedian with a very distinct point of view um, rather than just a funny person which she's 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 a very funny person but I mean like I, I'm more interested in her point of view yeah I, I agree I agree I think she has a really distinctive incisive point of view and I think that it might be it might just be that it's time to recharge those batteries 
Mm-hmm. When the next season happens, I think it has it been renewed. I just it kind of assume it has for a fifth season, and I haven't I haven't confirmed how many episodes yet. Which yeah. uh, after this one, I'll be interested to see because I, I think they've been ten episodes previously, and then this one was you know eight and a half. I, I'll certainly watch it when it comes back. Um, but yeah, fingers crossed because I was hoping it would continue on the trajectory of, of from the previous season, um, and that hasn't quite happened. But you know, it doesn't mean that she can't find that again in her writers as well. Um, get back into the, to that energy they had throughout most of the third season. So yeah, there was um, still in this season there have still been some really smart, funny uh, sketches, premises, and the execution is very often really great. So mm-hmm. I I mean I sound like I'm I sound like I'm really down on Inside Amy Schumer, but I'm definitely not. I still think yeah. it's one of the better sketch shows on TV, and always worth watching for me although this clip show really pushed the limits of what worth watching means yeah yeah fair enough well what wins your week in comedy and reality oh boy uh samantha b yeah samantha b yep because how hard is it to make comedy happen out of this tragedy without sacrificing anger or truth or kindness yeah I can't put it better. Absolutely agree. Samantha B wins the week in in a comedy. Um, pretty much the week in everything, right under the filibuster. Uh, for reality, I'll give it to OJ Made America, though I loved the Tony Awards too. Uh, so now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. How does an upstart Britain, best known for sitting and jesting from a desk in the middle of a forgotten slot on late night, far from Manhattan, chatting with Hollywood phonies, end up being the guy who hosts the Tony. CBS said this collision of theater and television needs a risk taker, it needs a rule breaker, it needs a troublemaker, a mover and a shaker. It needs that chubby dude from Into the Woods who played the baker. Considering his pedigree, this choice is not a mystery. The one man with two governors was discovered in the history, boys. With his talk show network, Honcho saw how this could be a classic exercise in realizing corporate synergy. Of course, the host of Broadway's most preeminent affair was in the spotlight. Those golden night is not to be embarrassing. The Dodge dispute was up review was drawing a comparison. To Tony's past of telecast, they've seen no Patrick Harris. Well, he knows that you're excited and he feels the very same. Cause he knows this night can bring you recognition and acclaim. Cause the theater's what he loves, it's the world from whence he came. Yes, the theater's where he made his name. And his name is James Corden. This week in Genre and Drama, we're going to talk briefly about Brain Dead, the new CBS show from the Kings. Uh, the uh, premiere uh, aired this week of The Insanity Principle, How Extremism in Politics is Threatening Democracy in the 21st Century. That's a long title. Uh, then we have, I'm going to talk briefly, very, very briefly about the Animal Kingdom pilot on TNT, uh, a little bit on Unreal Insurgent and Outlander Preston Pan. Preston Pans or Preston Pan? I don't know how it's pronounced, guys. I they said it in the episode. I don't remember. Um, then we have Penny Dreadful Ebb Tide. Uh, we'll be very brief on Outcast. I remember when she loved me, and we'll round things out with the Orphan Black finale from Dancing Mice to Psychopaths. So first up is Brain Dead. My main takeaway from this, Emily, is the uh, broke strings of the Good Wife. The strings of conflict are back. 
I don't know how appropriate they are. It was very jarring to me to have something that is so distinctly the good wife, just like copy and pasted over to brain dead. Uh, how did, uh, did you notice that? I don't know if you even like necessarily keyed into that. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, but what did you think of brain dead? I didn't notice that. I The Good Wife was one of the casualties of peak TV for me. It's, it became one of those shows I I couldn't keep up with. And so I've kind of put it on the shelf to binge at a later date. Uh, I, so, I, no, I didn't notice that. Although, I mean, it all looks very familiar. I also picked up on, uh, boy, I can't even remember Tony Schlub's character's name, in his in his bedroom, just the grayness and the sort of sleek, bleak lines, I thought, oh, House of Cards. Sure. Ah, yeah. But no, I, I didn't pick up on The Good Wife uh, at all. I, <laughs> I knew it was from the creators, but I, I'm not familiar enough with the series to have picked up any of the finer points. What did you think about, I mean, especially in a week where we've had more discussion, I mean, we're talking about the filibuster of, uh, you know, politics and where various it's a very charged political season even before this week uh how do, how do you feel about the the central point of this episode the idea that these bugs or something are taking people over and part of their evil plan is partisanship uh, <laughs> the premise is it, it's really depressing how much that would be a relief almost to, to think, oh, we're the subject of a brain control invasion of space ants who turn into space slugs. That's why we're all acting like this. Um, yeah, it's depressing how much that seems almost plausible after the recent election season, the ongoing election season, the everlasting election <laughs> I, I i like though that they take this this premise that feels almost uncomfortably true um and then marry it with you know tony shalhoub's brain falling out of his ear and then popping it's like so goofy yeah yeah it's 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 a very effective mix of creepy and silly uh, and i'm always a sucker for that you know, I've only seen the pilot. I haven't I haven't watched any upcoming episodes, so I don't know how it will bear out. But I'll give it a try. Yeah, that's, that's sort of how I feel about it, too. It's just sort of like, I don't know if they can sustain this. I don't know if this is interesting. I don't know why the bugs haven't already won, because there were an insane number of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can apparently, like, I don't know. Can they fly? But they can certainly crawl. Like, I don't know how they haven't taken over all... It seems like they've taken, it's not just one person. They've taken over a substantial portion of DC. Why haven't they taken over everyone? Um, but at least for now, I had a lot more fun with it than I was expecting to. Yeah, it's it's a fun show to watch so far. And I'll continue watching it, I'm sure. Um, I It also is really cleverly employing very specific shout outs to very specific genre uh, predecessors. Like there are invasion of the body snatcher references that are, they aren't just allusions. They're straight quotes from the original film or from the 1976 film. Uh, There are a lot of, a lot of little moments like that, that appeal to the genre fan in me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think I'm going to have more patience for this than I would for something that was a little less knowing and a little more general. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's summer, right? 
This is the kind of show, I just, just, there's no time during the crazier parts of the year. But right now, there's not quite as much viewing, we say, in this marathon session of the podcast. Um, <laughs> so there's a little bit more time for this one. At least that's how I feel. Um, I'm not going to be making time for Animal Kingdom on TNT. This one, I checked out this pilot pretty much just because it has Ellen Barkin and um, Scott Speedman. And and also Sean uh, Hattasi or Hattasi, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, from who I, of course, know from Southland. Uh and I, I didn't see the, the film uh, Animal Kingdom, which I hear was amazing, um, but I didn't see that. So I don't have that to base you know, like my response to this on. Mostly it's just I'm not interested in a crime family um, sort of sucking a, a, a teenager into their orbit after his, his mother dies. Um, he goes to stay with his grandmother and, her, and his uncles, and they're, they do, they're involved in criminal pursuits and uh, are just kind of creepy. And... and there's some there's some uncomfortable dynamics, I guess. Let's say uh, the the Sean Hadosi uh, character has is just out of jail and is uh, and and there's another character as well who both of them are just too a little too enamored with the teenager's teenage girlfriend. Um, I just don't need this in my life. So like, despite really enjoying, like, I'm so glad Ellen Barkin has a show. That's awesome. She's wonderful. Um, and she's really good in this episode, but I just don't need this in my life right now. So I will not be watching, uh, more of it. Did, did you see that? The, the original film is Australian, right? Um, in 2010. No, I haven't seen, and I haven't seen the show either. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's at least in our the circle, the Twitter bubble that I'm in, um, that I know that you share part of, um, Emily, uh, hasn't been talking about it very much. Um, it got reviewed over at the AV Club. I don't know how many people are covering it. Uh, there are some names here that I think will get people in this, maybe to check it out. But um, yeah, it certainly has not been one that at least our bubbles are particularly enamored with. So um, I'm not surprised that it hasn't really registered for you. Um, and I, I mean, or is that even that premise? Is that a premise that makes you go, I know. I mean, we've been talking about it all episode. Obviously, the execution is what matters. But it's, when your premise is there's a crime family with a matriarch and they are bad people. And will the teenager get embroiled in their web? Spoiler alert. Yes. Um, <laughs> that, I don't know. Is that even intriguing to you on that level? A matriarchal crime boss? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I had high hopes for Fargo's crime matriarch. But um but yeah, I, I, you'll notice that it didn't actually pull me in. Yeah. I, I heard the premise and thought, sure, yeah, why not? And then I looked at my schedule of what I had to watch. And, like, and it never made it on the slate. I'm yeah. good. I'm good. Fair enough. Uh, I, instead, I would say, rather than saying uh, time aside for Animal Kingdom, if there's one that you catch up with, I would say it should be Unreal, which I I know you don't you don't watch, Emily, but I'm enjoying. The second episode of the season, uh, really, I struggled with this one a bit. Uh, we have the, the dynamic between Quinn and Chet that they spend the entire episode on. It's just, you can't run a show this way. And so it, it was just getting really frustrating because they're set shut up so distinctly as a straw man. Um, he's just so incompetent that uh, it really got old very quickly for me. So I was relieved when they changed up the dynamic at the end of the episode. Hopefully there's something a little more interesting coming. I was really looking forward to this uh, Rachel and Quinn taking on the world together kind of thing. Uh, I'm much more interested in them as allies and as uh you know, defendants of each other, like, to, you know, being on each other's team, than them as um, occasionally intersecting entities or as having a more, um, a, a more antagonistic relationship. So I'm a little disappointed that they, that's already been so firmly dumped. Um, but, you know, maybe 
maybe there's more to come with that later in the season. Um, for now, I, like I said, I'm just relieved that they, it seems like Chet is going to be off the, the lot, which is a good thing because they just, if you're going to explore toxic masculinity, you need to actually put it with a character that has some nuance to it. And the Chet character has none the way that they're writing him. Um, so Fingers crossed we have some interesting things coming our way. Uh, Outlander, I just wanted to mention because I really loved that they explored Claire's PTSD about her time serving as a nurse in World War II. Um, now that she's back in the Scottish Highlands and there's a she's preparing to be a nurse in another combat uh, situation. Uh, I liked that, that th- this experience that she had kind of really bottled down came to the fore as she's watching these young not all young, but these soldiers train for battle. Um, and she knows that theoretically, like according to history, they're all going to get slaughtered in not that long a time from now, not the upcoming battle, but but one not far down the road. So watching her flashback to some young soldiers that she saw get killed, um, in world war two, I thought made a lot of sense and was a really great note to bring in at this point in the season so uh tip of the hat to outlander but let's move on to penny dreadful ebb tide because there there's only like what one episode two episodes left this season i can't remember i haven't actually been keeping track it's only episode, uh, it's episode seven but there are fewer episodes this season than last year i do know that i think you're right i that sounds like i haven't been keeping up with penny dreadful but in fact penny dreadful is a show that makes me clap when i remember that it's on tonight it's on tonight <laughs> Uh, I didn't expect that going in before the first episode, but it very quickly became something I couldn't stand to miss. Uh, And that's mostly, I'm going to be the thousandth person to say this, that's mostly Ava Green. She's incredible. Everybody in it is so good, and she's the best by far, which is really something to say. How are you feeling about this season, uh, the way that they've splintered the group? I think it, I think it's very effective, and I think it was almost inevitable because groups do splinter. That happens. People go different places, and it gives everybody a chance to do their own tour de force, uh, and and it lets people recombine in really interesting ways. I didn't think that I would be shipping uh, Vanessa and the creature. Uh, I can't remember his name. John. John Claire. Yes. Yeah, I I didn't think that was going to happen when he first appeared, but mm-hmm. here we are. Um, the, they're 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 my OTP. They're mm-hmm. the ones I want. Um, I I think it's really interesting. I mean, it shatters the narrative and gives you all these different tangents to follow week by week. And I can understand why some people find that frustrating. Um, and it does sometimes. It kind of splits my attention too. But I find it pretty rewarding also. What do you think? Um, I really like the parts of the show that I really like and do <laughs> not care about large swaths of the show. So I do not care about the creature at all. I negative care about the creature. <laughs> Every time the creature is like whining about how hideously disfigured his face is, like it's not that disfigured. If they wanted to make you ugly, they needed to do a lot more than give you yellow contact lenses. 
uh, and like a, a pale face. It's like, look at everybody else on the show. You are not more pale than Vanessa Ives. And you're like, I'm hideous. Don't look at me. My life is terrible. It's like, you're alive. Okay. You've got, you're telling me you abandoned your family and I'm supposed to feel bad for you because you're so alone. I think that some of that is just the writing where they have sort of, they've given themselves the freedom to figure out these characters as they go along and see what interests them, like interests the creator Logan and, um, and then really go down that path. So I have no doubt that in season one and season two, uh, John Clare and his family and his sick child did not exist. That is not the backstory <laughs> that existed for that character at that point, which is why he was bemoaning how he was alone and how uh, he was going to just kill Frankenstein if he didn't give him a, a, a eternal bride or whatever. Um, so, so when we have him with his family, I was like, okay, are we going to get back to John Clare? Because the John Clare in that episode when he was working in the asylum uh, or the institute or whatever was fantastic. Loved yeah. Roy Kinnear there. Adored him. Fantastic. Loved Roy Kinnear as Lucifer and as uh, and as Dracula. Amazing. But I just, I have no time. I have no empathy and no time <laughs> for the freaking creature and all of his, just don't look at me. Ugh. I am a monster. It's like, well, you were really full of... Uh, uh, plenty of pity. You're full of self pity. That's that's for sure. Um, but I got none for you. So so that part of the show don't care about. Dorian Gray mostly don't care about. Certainly don't care about Brona at all. At the end of this episode, when they're trying to brainwash her, I'm right back on board. That's a narrative I'm invested in. But um, the rest of that I just don't. I don't. I don't care about. You know. But I but I loved I, I loved you when you were the thing I had imagined you to be and the personality I had given you that was great like that's an interesting thing to explore but the rest of everything else about frankenstein like his drug use and all this other stuff i just don't care about at all so the parts of the show that that are working for me really work like gangbusters everything with patty lapone adore it everything we got with vanessa all season terrific this idea that she doesn't embrace dracula but she embraces this part of herself and what that represents i think is fantastic writing um i've also really liked timothy dalton and um josh hartnett all the stuff that they've been doing in america i've really liked that as well uh, i think that hartnett went, got on board with um vampire chick witch chick witch lady a bit too quickly and then you know that was a little i didn't quite buy that but everything else about that this season i've really enjoyed so um now they're bringing everything the characters back together for the last two episodes there are nine episodes this season so there's two more left um I'm excited for that. Um, but yeah, certainly the parts of it that, you know, that it's, it's one of those things where you, can, you you take the good, you take the bad, and there you have Penny Dreadful for me. Yeah, I am I am very worried about Lily. And if, if they reduce Lily to the sort of vacant, docile creature that she was before... I'm going to burn that studio down myself. <laughs> They're not going to do that. They, I, I, that would be anti-everything that Logan has done with this show. It can't happen. No, it can't. So she's just, do you think, how many people do you think she kills in that room? When no, she, when she escapes. Oh, oh, I see. I thought you meant, I thought you meant in the hall. Oh, that, that. That cut between urging the women to go out and bring me the right hand of a bad man. And then and then they cut back to the hall and everybody's having a drink. And I said, well, they seem pretty relaxed for people who are going to go out and 
are you guys supposed to be going and cutting it? And then they cut to a pile of hands and I laughed <laughs> as loudly as I have ever laughed at anything at that pile of severed hands. That was a great shot. Huh. Are, are the other parts of the show working better for you than, than they, they are for me? Like how, how is the stuff with Dracula going for you? How's the stuff with, uh, which actually I've been on board with, but um, how, how is the corners of the show going for you? Boy, uh, I really, I just, I just want Ava Green on screen mostly. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I like me some Billy Piper, the men I don't care about. Uh-huh. Fair enough. I care about the men. I don't care about Dorian Gray. I certainly don't care about Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> I did. At one point, I did care about Dr. Frankenstein. But, I mean, talk about self-pity. Yeah. Yeah. It's very frustrating to watch these three men, one of whom doesn't even know Lily, <laughs> come together to just undercut all of her... Sure, she's evil, but she's vigorous and exciting. She has goals. She's really fun to watch. And to see them come together to bully her back into a box is very upsetting. And I know that's the content of the show. That's the intent is to make it upsetting. But I don't care about them. I only care about her. I wouldn't cut off a hand for her, but I mean, let her ask me to. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, I the, the the only other thing that I have with this one is that um, I really I think they've done and when you have Ava Green selling it, she's gonna sell hard. I think they've mostly sold uh mostly earned sort of the where they're going right now with her and Dracula. But I think that on a as a whole, both with her and with with uh, Josh Hart and his character, like. They both theoretically have embraced this darkness within them, and I don't believe it. I don't, like, I don't either. I don't believe that what has happened to make her accept, like, accept this dark part of herself when it means that the entire world is going to bathe in blood. Like, what? It's not like she got betrayed by you know Patty the Pwned. It's not like any of this other stuff. It's just like she's like, well. I guess my boyfriend left, so ellipses. I mean, it's like, that's not an, and certainly with Hartnett, there was nowhere near, there's like, I, I think that's the one weak point I would have in what have been my favorite parts of the show is, I don't know if they've quite earned it, but I, I think that they'll, by the end of the season, they will have brought the characters back. So I think I'll be more on, on board with that by the end of the season. That's my, that's what I'm anticipating. I That, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that that, that, easy acceptance of darkness and not just within them but all around the globe is it's not sustainable it Mm. can't it can't carry on but here's a question for you because i think you've had more analytical thoughts about penny dreadful than i have had the luxury of having dr seward in this most recent episode says uh to renfield says that she's an unusual case. Vanessa is an unusual case that she's a genuine split personality. I'm not, I don't really understand what she means by that. I understand why she would think her patient is delusional, but I don't see the clear split. I think that's because in the episode that we got, that fantastic episode with just them and with John Clare, um, we saw it from her perspective with John Clare you know, Rory Kinnear basically playing three characters. Right. But from her perspective, she was asking some questions, but mostly it was 
Ava Green being four people having conversations with oh, each okay. other. So right. that that's really how I I thought of it. I, I, like if you if you're at her perspective, she didn't get the visual we got. <laughs> so she was just in an office with uh with Ava Green while Ava Green was herself voices and like also lucifer and also dracula and also john claire the kindly you know orderly um so i think i think she's just trying to put into words what makes sense to her so um that's what i would key it you know connect that to i was just i I thought for a moment she was gonna go and kill dr seward because when they said the thing about the night creatures and like the episode that Pilot was in last season was I think wasn't that called the Nightcomers or something like that. So I was very concerned that she would have assumed that um, Doctor Seward was Dracula and she was going to go kill Doctor Seward and then find out that it was actually. So I, I was very glad when she knew who Dracula actually was. That felt like a really easy uh, revelation, didn't mm. it? Yeah. Oh, and also, he's associated with the night creatures, and she says, "Oh my God, it's my boyfriend." Like that felt that felt like a gimme in a way that Penny Dreadful doesn't often do. Yeah, but I was very glad that she that that she um she's like oh when they're like you know he will seduce you that will happen she's like oh I did just I did just start sleeping with my boyfriend. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes way more sense that why he was so cool with these random things I was saying and everything. And I like that he didn't really argue with it either. He didn't like try to con- convince her otherwise. Um, right, they're just drawing it out. It's yeah. just all it's all exposed. All the cards are on the table, and I like that. It just it surprised me. I thought we were going to uh-huh. drag on for another episode while she mooned around about her new her new love, and I and I'm I'm it's actually kind of a relief, although a surprise, to have it cut to the chase like that. Now, do you have any thoughts on who the thanatologist is? Because everybody else, pretty much, almost everybody, is a literary character. Yeah, I haven't. I I have been trying to avoid Googling answers to that because mm-hmm. I feel like they must be out there. And, you know, I have some Twitter friends who are hypothesizing wildly. And I just don't know. But, okay, here is my one possibility. Um and I can't, I can't remember the character's name. The sword fighter. What, yeah. what is her name? Katrina Hardigan. Thank you. Uh, Katrina Hardigan um, shows up, you know, and, and she's in trousers and she's fighting with the men. Oh, the men. And, and I thought, have we had a time traveler yet? Mm-hmm. Right? There, yeah, there are um, some thoughts about that I could share, but you might, I don't know if you would consider that. Uh, Well, apparently in the time machine, uh, in the one of the film adaptations, Hardigan is the name of the time traveler who is not named in the book, the time machine. So just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Dennis and I have been speculating before the new character was revealed who it might be. So who haven't we seen yet? We haven't seen. And he speculated that it might be H.G. Wells. So I think he has to get points for that. There we go. Even if it turned out to be, you know, in a roundabout way. Yeah. And yeah, and then we saw, even before she took her mask off, I said, that's a woman. And we decided it might be a time traveler. Yeah. Well, we'll see where they go with it. I'd, certainly, it's not like a one for one like some of the other characters have been. Certainly this season with Renfield and everything. But um, 
yeah, I, that would be very exciting. So I look forward to seeing where they go with that. I have a feeling like it feels like there's a reveal coming for that character. Um, I would be very surprised if she's not in next season as well. But we'll see. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention Outcast very briefly. Uh, I remember when she loved me just because I think this episode, I was having a little trouble with this episode because it kept repeating the same moments over and over again um, yeah. of the, you know, the main character with the abuse with his mother um, and, you know, her, uh, when she attacked him and he ended up um, uh, defending himself, but she ended up in a coma um, or some sort of, you know, vegetative state. Uh, but I thought that the more I was watching and thinking about it, uh, the more I came to actually really appreciate that and the way that this show is, is taking on the lingering effects of domestic abuse and like that kind of a traumatic in, um, instance in someone's childhood. This like, he just can't help. Now that he's in this space, he can't help reliving it with everything he experiences. And this, of course, this new aspects, you know, this new stuff with the demon possession is recontextualizing everything for him. So I think it was really, it made so much sense to, to recontextualize that moment for the viewers with the information we get at the end of the episode, but also to just really, like, if there would be something wrong with the character if he wasn't dwelling in that, in in this experience when he from from when he was a kid after what he learns in the pilot, um, so I actually really appreciated that as tough as it was at times to watch. Um, I don't, it, it's one of those shows where it's it's incredibly moody, uh, but it feels appropriate for the show. But that doesn't doesn't mean it's fun to watch. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, or um, or we'll just move on to Orphan Black pretty quickly here. But I was curious um, if any of that was striking you as well. No, that's I think I think that's the biggest takeaway from this episode. Uh, Outcast is really hard to watch. It is, it is so visceral. As much as it is intellectual, there are so many moments that I just recoil from the screen. But that episode in particular was, it was hard to watch because it is a very, very natural reconstruction of what it's actually like to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I, I had I had PTSD uh, for an event in my past and I'm better now, but that is kind of the defining characteristic of it is that you keep replaying and reliving specific moments without warning, without any sort of discretion over when they come over you. They just, they just wallop you out of nowhere. And it's very disruptive, just exactly the way it's narratively disruptive for this episode. And they're very revealing just the way that it's narratively revealing for this episode that if you if you can't control when the moment comes then you can't control how you feel from moment to moment but when you revisit it again and again and again you see more and more of it every time and you learn more about the history every time so it's very effective it's really hard to watch yeah Interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, that's I'm, I'm glad to, to, to hear that at least if they're going to take on a topic like PTSD, that they're treating it effectively and, and respectfully and, and that really conveying, you know, not, not just using it as a convenient way to, you know, deliver plot details or anything, but really trying to capture the tone and feel of it because um, fortunately, I haven't had that experience um, yet. Uh, hopefully, I won't. But um, so I couldn't necessarily speak to that. So um, that's 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 good to know that they're taking this 
challenging topic. A topic that, let's be honest, a lot of shows really use to have a convenient, very important episode and then tuck away and never mention again. Um, It's extremely dramatic. (laughs) And it kind of feels inherently exploitative. And of course, everyone's experience is different. But I mean, for me, that felt very very realistic and therefore very hard to watch even though i've recovered mm-hmm. it it's it's very i hadn't i hadn't consciously thought about how how that specifically makes the show hard for me to watch but yeah revisiting past trauma is is something shows do and if you're going to do it at least do it in a way that speaks to someone who's experienced something well not remotely like that but yeah it's it's very effective it's very visceral and very unpleasant. Well, on that note, uh, we had a lot of stabby, stabby and death on Orphan Black this week in their finale from Dancing Mice to Psychopaths. Now we're going to have uh, one more season of the show. It's been renewed for a fifth and final season of 10 episodes, which feels about appropriate. But what I most took away from this episode was not the various characters you know, dying, Kazima getting really, you know, freezing out there in the cold and her illness progressing or, um, you know, Susan getting stabbed and and, um, Sarah getting stabbed in the leg. The number one thing I responded to was, finally, they've committed to a villain. Rachel's going to be the villain. And it's so wonderful to have one because she's terrific. She's so good. Oh, this show's been crying out for a villain for years. And so when Rachel says, uh, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to grow us some lab mice and then we're going to cut off their tails, to paraphrase, I was like, oh, good. She's just the bad guy now. Yes, there are shades to her. Yes, she's more interesting than just cookie cutter. But the show desperately needs someone who is bad and who is self-serving and evil and doesn't care because that way their good characters have some stakes to fight to 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 deal with have some uh someone to actively push against um and so i'm actually really excited for next season now oh i i I don't know that i could have been more excited for one for the next season and two for the story to conclude as much as I hate to see something I love end, I love when things get to conclude on their own terms. So that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say this about Orphan Black. I've been talking all podcast long about how the premise doesn't define the show, the execution does. And Orphan Black, for me, is kind of the the, the, the proof of that because I'm lost. I mean, I more or less know what's going on, but I kind of stopped. At some point, I I was watching it. Uh, I think I was watching a bunch of episodes after I'd had surgery, so I was on morphine, <laughs> and I caught up with several episodes I'd missed, and I didn't really track the plot developments as well as I might have. And it turns out that missing the plot developments for a few episodes really matters, even <laughs> a year or two later, because... I can't always be sure I know what is going on in the show from episode to episode. And it would be easy to find out, you know, I could wiki this stuff, but I really only care about the characters and the performances. It's so much fun to watch, even if you're watching it going, all right. And that guy is, Oh, he's bad. He's a bad guy. (laughs) It's really fun to watch. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. And and this, this, this whole episode just, 
it brings together some different threads of the season in a really entertaining way. I'm so glad they brought back Crystal again. I love Crystal. I love Crystal. Oh, man. Her just, like, that is not what I look like. Like, the reaction they give yeah. her to the clone thing. And just, like, th- persistent through the that scene where she's like, oh, wait, who are you again? I'm your clone. <sighs> yeah, okay, whatever. Um, I, I thought that was terrific. Um. And I hope to see I hope to see more of her in season five and that they never make her like they keep making her successful because it's great. But but they just never have her really clued in. I I would be super on board for that. Um, Yeah. And just the energy of this episode, the energy of the end of the the episode. This is a show that needed a end date because then they could do this with Rachel. It feels like really, especially after they announced that this was going to be the last season coming up. And that's when they go all out with Rachel. That for me feels like they've been kind of filling time with that character and waiting before they knew they were going into the last season to, to really commit with her. So I'm super excited about that. I'm so glad Delphine is back. Like, so, like, a number of shows this year have unburied their gaze, and that just makes me so incredibly happy to know that Delphine is now off that autostraddle list of uh, of, of the des- dead lesbian characters on television, and that she can, she's not dead, guys. She's off the list. It makes me so happy. I clapped when Delphine came back, and I knew she was coming back. I'd known. Yeah, we did. We'd it's seen her. Time. Yeah. Because. But still. If I, I feel like if we don't actually see the corpse, that person's mm-hmm. not dead. Yeah. On Orphan Black. On most that shows. Not dead. Yeah. But still, when you don't see them, for, like, you don't see the corpse, and then you don't see them for, several, like, a couple seasons, yep. you know. But, uh, yeah, so I was excited about that. Um, what do you, do you have any thoughts on, what is it there, is it now, now, Miss, it's not Susan's husband, right? This is just somebody else who they're revealing? The the messenger, the yeah. Beard? No, the, the the guy at the end, right? They're like, oh, it can't be, blah blah blah. So is it just like somebody who's cheated death? Is that what we're going with? I'm confused. I have no idea. I have okay. No idea. And it's, it's not just me. Then. Because you know, you know, as a critic, you you always want to have an idea. Yeah. You want to know who everybody is. You want to know every not just the stated textual story, but the subtext. You want to you want to know what the stratagems are on the backside, the unconscious, unstated stuff. You want to know who every character is. You want to know who every character is going to be. You want to know who's coming when. And it's been remarkably freeing to just throw my hands in the air and say, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and, and also, we're pretty good at watching TV. We yeah. do it for a job. Um, so it's like, we feel like you should be able to. Um, but yeah, like you said earlier, I don't watch the show for the plot. I watch the show for the characters and the performances. So uh, I thought this was actually a much stronger episode than some of the other ones have been this season. And it finally, like I said, felt like it had some momentum. So I was actually very happy with this finale. Any yeah. final thoughts on Orphan Black? Um, just a shout out to Felix dressed as James Bond with eyeliner. Hello, <gasps> Felix. I love you. Oh, that was so I wonderful. So and like the jazzy score underneath too was ah. just like, and the sunglasses and everything. Oh, it was wonderful. It was delightful. Loved it. So beautiful. <laughs> well, what was your week in genre and drama? Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Orphan Black. Yeah. I'll give it to Orphan Black too. Yeah. It was, it was super fun. And I'm so glad <laughs> that it went out strong. 
yeah, you can't end a season stronger than that. I again, I just literally, I, I, I spontaneously burst into applause a handful of times watching it, and I love the show. Yeah, I love yeah. the show. I can't wait for it to come back. Well, there we go. Now we will take a break and talk about another show that we love and can't wait for it to come back, and that's The Americans. So uh, we'll take a break, uh, listen to a clip and some music, and be back with Dennis Perkins, also of the AV Club, to talk about The Americans Season 4. If she runs again. I know. You should tell her that you'll join her. That you'll have a life together. She needs that hope to get her on the plane. If you could go back. Back? What do you mean back? With Martha. If our kids were grown and you could just get out of this whole life. What, what? What are you talking about? Would you go with her? We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, uh, joined for this week by the fabulous Emily L. Stevens of the AV Club. And joining us for a, our season spotlight here at the end of the, of the podcast this week, also from the AV Club, Mr. Dennis Perkins. Dennis, welcome back. Hi, Kate. Um, so this week we're talking about the American season four. And uh, I'm super duper excited because I love the Americans. Um, and Noel does not love the Americans. That's okay. We all have different shows that don't quite speak to us like they do everyone else. Um, but you guys also like the Americans. So we get to dive deep uh, and get nerdy and it's going to be fun uh, because this was a terrific season of television like the Americans always is. At least that's what I would say. What, how do you guys feel about the season of the Americans? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this season, it, it, it was great as always. And, and really, you know, now that they're getting, well, not near the end game, but they're, it's sort of closing in on decisions having to be made and and the doors being closed and it just it had more of a somber feel to it and it really kind of nailed down uh in the in the in the finale i thought i agree with dennis that this season has made the the questions around the jennings mission much more tangible much less abstract and they're doing that you know by bringing it home by bringing it to page but also by making a much more overt reference to the consequences of what they see to be the war they're fighting. You know, there was a lot of Cold War imagery. There always has been in the Americans, but this season, like, they brought in the day after. Mm -hmm. uh, they're bringing in, uh, what, the Yazoo song, Winter Kills, uh, Major Tom, Peter Schilling. Uh, lots and lots of Cold War references that are both a little more specific and also like they're hitting me where I live because I was growing up then. These are songs from my, from my early teens, from my, from my preteens and teens. 
It, and I think it's also this season we're seeing the abstract notion of Paige as of as being brought in to their life, to lifestyle, to their work, um, become more and more tangible to them. And watching particularly Elizabeth's reactions over the course of the season, I think have been really, uh, really entertaining, really interesting. Because basically it's stuff that Philip was saying. But it's it's hitting her now when Paige is reporting to her on their neighbors and she's taken aback by that and she's not she it really it kind of seems like it may you know, saddens her. It's like this is what Philip was saying, you know, back when you were initially talking about it. But, but the, the you know, this again, this this more ephemeral these ideas have really solidified in this season. And and I, I think you can also tie that I mean, for me, the. The season, though I think it's terrific, the third season really stands uh, out for me as even better than the fourth season because I have some questions about some of the different threads I'm, we'll talk about. Um, but one, a big one is was Nina. And so the, the, the idea that mm, this can't end well for Nina, like there's no happy ending. That was sort of just that a vague threat out there that in this season becomes tangible. Um, but however, as strong, as well done, as well executed as her death is in this in this season it really hammered home for me this idea like why did we stay spend all this time with her it it really brought the question to me of what is the thread of the show what is the show about because for me it's always been about the Jennings and that's the most like the number one thing and their circle so as soon as Nina wasn't in that anymore I felt like she didn't need to be on the show so I kept waiting for her story to keep like to tie back in to tie back so that we there was a reason we were still following her and I think that's why her death didn't hit me as much as it did everybody else. Um, I'm rambling here. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts <laughs> on this. I should pass the baton. But um, but for me, with Nina, with Paige, with Elizabeth, this really was a season of um, the promise or like the, the realities hovering outside of the show in the earlier seasons becoming concrete. I, I think that's a really smart observation. And I mean, I think that's kind of what I'm saying about making the consequences of their mission more concrete and more tangible that yeah i nina felt like she was outside the scope of the show all of a sudden but her death is very it's very brutal it's very close it's really it's bureaucratic in the bloodiest ugliest way uh gad once he's once he's not with the fbi anymore he goes off and then he has the most elaborate narrative experience he's ever had where he dies horrifically in a bloodbath and yeah the the world of the show is opening up and in a really ugly brutal personal way that people who aren't directly connected to the jennings are dying for no reason that we can really understand why did they show us his death i mean i know you just said what you were just saying you're just addressing that emily but um that's and the same thing like with Nina. We saw her death because we were so invested in that character. We had to see where that story was going to end. Um, but I like bringing back Gad just to kill him really threw me. And I feel like it makes me have less, I feel like I have less of a handle on this show because I'm not like if I were reviewing it, maybe I would have worked all this out. I don't know. But because I'm not week to week, I'm, I'm still I'm not quite sure. I'm sure there's a reason, but I'm not sure well, what it is. I think I think there are a couple of reasons. One one thing I just said that yeah that these threads, once somebody exits their orbit, the Jennings orbit, 
it doesn't mean that they're safe or that their story is ended. It just means that they they aren't necessarily narratively useful to the show anymore, but still when something really horrible happens, we have to see it. And the other is a dramatic reason. It's I'm just spitballing here, but we don't see Martha. We just see her leave. Yeah, and don't from what you're saying, we can't ever see her again because she's not allowed to die. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not saying she's dead. I'm not even speculating about her returning someday. I'm just saying having these people whose story we're not particularly invested in at this point in the series, watching them die so horribly hangs a little weight on Mar Martha's disappearance into the void. And, and you know, Philip and Elizabeth hear about Gad's death, but they don't really know what happened to Martha. I mean, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they're getting messages back, but there's no message. There's no message that is as clear as the message, oh, this person died in a hotel room. They're never going to hear anything that concrete about Martha. I like that... Um... I don't know. I I liked. I I agree, I agree with you, Kate. That I don't know the Nina story. It seemed like they spent way more time on it than uh, the payoff suggested. You know, like unlike Gad, who you know popped in here and there as you know Stan's you know lonely old drinking buddy uh, before he got bumped off. You know, I mean Nina, she was being set up as it looked like she was, she had more of an arc going on and I don't know that they did as much with it, but I, I like, I don't know. I like the, the concept of the show that the Jennings and this world, I mean, but the, the Jennings moving through this world is not going to leave anybody untouched. Like you can, anybody who comes into contact with them, you know, and they can be as tortured and they can be as, conflicted as they want but it's like they leave a mark on people when they move through and once you're marked there's <laughs> i just like how ruthlessly kind of the show shows that this world is is makes so many people disposable and uh yeah i i really uh it, it's working for me like i said i thought this season it it closed down a lot of uh avenues in a, in a, in a, in a uh, uh, brutal and, uh, but, uh, but inevitable way. And it, it kind of added to the whole mood of, of the, the season for me. Now, one storyline that we got resolved, at least for now, but not brutally, uh, was Oleg and uh, what's going on with the Residentura. Uh, that has, I say, I love the Americans and I do. That's the part of the show I'm least invested in. And I'm, I'm sure that some part of it, as much as I like to think it isn't, there's probably some part of my brain that just like I'm reading. Uh, and so like, <laughs> like probably there's something in there. I, I want to believe there's not. I love there's I watch plenty of foreign film with subtitles and they never bother me. I don't have any problem with subtitles. Um, but the combination of everyone dressing kind of the same and the very like everything just nothing ever pops for me <laughs> in those scenes, whether it's lighting or costuming or setting or, or like the, uh, the props or anything. It's, there's a sameness to everything, which is very fitting for where they are and who they are. But I think that's part of it. And I think it's also um, the characters are all very reserved when they're talking at the Residentora. But um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm curious of what could be coming for that character moving forward uh, for Oleg or just for the rest of like, are we just not going to see the resident tour next year? Cause Arkady Ivanovich and Oleg are gone theoretically. So why would we go back to it? Yeah. I, I think part of it, you know, they are guarded, but they have to be, they have to be reserved because they don't, none of them even more so than, than in the American intelligence community, they can't trust each other they can't yeah. trust that they're on the same team and so they have to like every conversation between Oleg and Arkady was you know layered in glances and double checking what you're saying before you say it and after you say it and then you know so it, it kind of sucked necessarily kind of sucked the life out of it I think Oleg and Tatiana their their kind of story this year was the first time that I I really kind of warmed to Oleg as a person. I mean, he and Stan, again, had kind of a weird buddy dynamic going for, you know, after a while. But, you know, the, the idea that... I think the problem is that we're so conditioned to think that everybody in the Residentura could be playing somebody else mm -hmm. that you never really get too invested because you don't know if you're being kind of put on as well. And I think it also just could be that Annette Mahendru just, at least for me, grabbed me immediately and was became so clearly the heart of that part of the story that when she was gone from that part, like the, even just geographically, that left a giant void that it's not your fault, Oleg. You were not going to fill that void. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I think that that also might be part of it for me. But um, I would say that's been the least successful part of the show. So I'm actually I'm intrigued with what this opens up for them narratively the options that they might have moving forward. But um, yeah, I'm so I'm curious, Emily, do you connect more with the Residentura scenes than, than I have this season? Where are you at with that? Yeah, no, I really don't. Uh, I feel about the same way you do. Although one of the things that I find most interesting about the Residentura and, and also the scenes, scenes in the USSR is how it's, it's a set dressing thing. It's how they cast a light on the Jennings home. Like I suddenly started noticing they really like shiny metal. <laughs> the Jennings really like, I think they have brass or gold trim in their bathroom. They really like patterns. They have a lot of, of heavily patterned, really trendy wallpaper. And I, I can't help but read that as a sort of an old school Russian influence, the empire. It, it's so textured and so rich and so much glittery stuff. And, you know, one, they're people who came from a place where they didn't have access to this kind of middle-class luxury and now they do and two it is sort of the epitome of luxury in in russia in old school russia is to have all that pattern and gold and glitz uh so it's mostly a visual thing that i get from the residentura but no i i, I can't say that i'm as connected to the characters there as as i think the show would like me to be mm -hmm. Now, of course, the characters I am connected with more that are here at the end of the season, uh, we take us back to some tragedy. Uh, we've got William, the Dylan Baker character. Okay, I'm sure I missed something. Why did he expose himself at the end? So he doesn't go to jail? So he doesn't get executed? So he'll be so horribly dead in two days? Because that's better? And, and here is here is what I think. I think it's so he doesn't get interrogated in a classic technique. I think it's because he 
he genuinely has, and this surprised me when I thought it, he genuinely has a devotion to the mission. He didn't want to deliver that, uh, I've forgotten what, I've forgotten, Hasa, Lhasa, Lhasa. He didn't want to deliver the bioweapon, but he did. He didn't want to give himself up to the mission, but he did. He doesn't want to give his life to the mission, but he does. I think also, you know, in in his in his speech, in his deathbed, one of his deathbed speeches, he, you know, he just talks about how uh, it, it leaves you, what did he say? It leaves you hollow inside this life. It dry, It leaves you dry. It dries you up. And I think on a certain extent, like he was, you know, he, he talked about himself, uh, you know, good old agent um, Adderholt uh, after offering him a Coke, which is an ador- <laughs> adorably Adderholtian thing to do. Um, you know, he, uh, he talked about how, you know, it's at first it was it was like being the star of of your own movie. And he had a wife or he had a, you know, an assigned kind of companion that and but she drifted away and he talked about he couldn't have friends and you know how he believed but he it it's you have a sense it just wasn't touching him anymore and and it kind of came home to me in that scene where he's on the run through the park and the you know the well-trained well-conditioned fbi guys are after him and it's just like he's not if he ever was he's not up for this anymore and so (laughs) you know that 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 final move to give him you know the you know, the very stigmata-like kind of uh, uh, wounds, so he'll go down. You know, it just seemed like, you know, it seemed like in a way he was talking about the show in a way. You know, at first it was it was exciting. It was like, you know, it was the, the novelty and the excitement of being the star of this spy drama. But now it's, it's lonely and it's sad. And it's, uh, for him anyway, you know, time to move on. That's really beautifully expressed, Perkins. Oh, you. <laughs> well, let's talk some more lonely and sad. Let's talk about Martha and how, uh, once again, Alison Wright killed it all season. <sighs> mm-hmm. <laughs> She's extraordinary. I just, like, I, I don't want her to come back because she can't come back for any good reasons. Like, nothing positive, you know. She, I can't imagine her escaping the KGB's, like, observation so that she could like turn tides and report to good old USA like that's not gonna happen (laughs) so like the only reason she would come back is for worst things to happen to her so I kind of don't want her to come back but I love Alison Wright so much she does such tremendous work but she's so you know I mean she worked in the espionage community but she you know she she's not (laughs) there's no sense that she's gonna turn out to be you know she's not She's not up for this sort of thing. I mean, her best case scenario is that we visit her and we see her, you know, working in a munitions plant in Belgrade or something in this terrible, lonely world and trying to learn Russian and, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, yeah, I I think it it her end was as tragic as, you know, again, just somebody who got swept up, who got kind of tainted by the Jennings rolling through her life and... She's gone. 
I didn't realize until this very moment that I've been writing Martha fanfic in my head, but apparently I have because <laughs> it seems really obvious to me that Martha, yeah, I agree that this is, this is a tragedy that she got touched by something she thought was love and it turned out to be tragedy. But it seems very clear to me that Martha has a long, lonely future working in a, in a Soviet charm school teaching spies who are going to go on to be the future Elizabeth and Philip, everything about contemporary America, that she's going to teach them, you know, how you count on your fingers and how you order a cup of coffee. And have you seen these new VCRs? They have them. People have them in their houses. I feel like she's going to be spending the rest of her life teaching future Soviet spies how to navigate the U.S. First of all, write that i want to read it second of all <laughs> uh that's amazing but um yeah th there's again there's the the humanity given to that character the respect given to that character and it's something that we talk about every year about the americans but it remains just as true true like it would have been easier to kill her it would have been like a tragic moment oh no you could philip could have hold her in her arm in, in his arms or something like it would have been easier to do that but this show as it has all throughout this character this character should be a cliche and a joke but to philip she never is to to some of the other people in the line of succession kind of you know but to philip she never is and to the the show she never is um and i just i appreciate so much just how hard and painful her departure is and the realization for her of what has happened and what is going to happen with her moving forward seeing her father come back after she's gone i mean absolutely crushing and such an effective way of keeping her alive in the audience's mind without giving us the reward of seeing her mm -hmm. and you're right kate that she she could easily have been a joke this character but she never is and and she isn't to elizabeth either even though elizabeth doesn't really know her doesn't Elizabeth say when Martha is going onto the plane, doesn't she say to Philip that she would understand if he wanted to go with her? Yeah. That's a deep understanding of how much Martha means to him and how much she means to the show. I thought that, that whole scene, that that um, exchange we get in that episode and, and just the way that the strain of Martha leaving, um, the her having to be extracted and leaving... Uh, plays out in the dynamic between Peter and Elizabeth, Philip and Elizabeth, sorry, um, is some of the best stuff the show's ever done. That that conversation where, where where she comes up and Gregory gets like, it's just like the G-bomb right in the middle of their conversation. Um, I just think it's some of the best material that, that the show's done. Yeah. I'm trying to locate that that exchange in space is it before or after she sees philip in the phone booth calling martha i think it's after martha leaves isn't it oh okay all right because during that during that phone booth conversation all i could think was elizabeth reads lips doesn't she he's turned toward her he tells martha he loves her and he says it he means it mm -hmm. and elizabeth must see and understand that there must be a level on which he knows that she sees and understands that. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting to give this arc to Philip and to not give anything similar to Elizabeth. Cause of course we had that connection with Gregory, but that was when 
Philip and Elizabeth's marriage was much more of a business proposition than anything really emotional or certainly any any really deep connection between the two of them. We watched at, and through the first and, and the second season as they basically became a real marriage. So this is something new. And I love that they give it to Philip. Now, I find that really interesting because I think there is a parallel for Elizabeth in this season because for the first time, maybe, maybe ever, certainly that we've ever seen on the show, Elizabeth has a friend. She's, she's friends <laughs> with Young Hee, who, by the way, is that uh, Ruth, Ruthie, Ruthie Ann Miles? Yeah. She's, she's fantastic. She's just so, she's so light and chattery and effervescent, but there's such a person in there. She isn't given a lot to do, but there's so much identity in that character. She's just fantastic. Uh, and Elizabeth, for the first time ever, has a connection with someone, the kind of connection that that her life has really forbidden her from having. And she still, the mission is everything. She sacrifices her friend and her friend's marriage and her friend's husband and herself, her own friendship, to complete the mission they mm. give her an out they try to let her out of it and she do they though do you think that they really did or do you think that was an empty gesture i mean she got to decide they said uh they they, they would look for another way and that that they did and they couldn't find it so there isn't another way and then they said do you want to go through with it knowing that she would but do you, I mean, I think that's kind of the heart of the show is, do you ever know that someone will go through with it? It gets back to William and Philip not wanting to turn over the bio weapon that mm. you don't, these are humans. They're, they're, they're the unknown factor in everything you're doing that you can, you can plan and scheme and propose strategies, but ultimately people are going to be people. What do you think, Dennis? Yeah, I mean, Emily and I were kind of talking about this last night, but I—that's kind of the the heart of the show for me. And um, you know, because on one hand, it is you know like like uh, um, uh, Dylan Baker, uh, <laughs> William was talking about uh, you know that you can believe and you can plan and you can train and you can be all these things. And imagine that you have these grand uh, ideals behind what you're doing. Uh, but when it comes down to it, you're very lonely because you can't be an entire person. And even Elizabeth and Philip, who have this bond of decades with, you know, children and, you know, <laughs> as we've seen, a, a fully functional athletic sex life. You know they're they're very close and they're very, uh, you know, intimate. Uh, but they they're not uh, fully human in the middle of it. They can't be. They can't rise to the level of, you know, as kind of uh, held up as kind of their opposite number. You know, the Pastor Tim and his wife, and you see, you know, you get the the switch from William's deathbed, this horrifying. Uh, sterile deathbed to uh, Pastor Tim's wife. Uh, you know, you see a bed and you think, oh, it's we're going back to William, but it's her giving birth to a baby, you know, and they're so happy. Uh, and you think, you know, that 
on one level, they're kind of, you know, the simple-minded Americans in a sense, you know, that that are being held up as, you know, sort of the dopes that the Jennings are, uh, are the, their opposite number, but uh, they desperately want that and they can't have it. And so I, I, I'm rambling a little bit, but the the idea that the, that's what kind of gives the show its engine for me is that it's always going to be essentially tragic, but in a weird way, like in a tiny kernel of a way, kind of optimistic in the sense that people, uh, like Emily said, people are the X factor and they can't be... Um, <laughs> they can't be uh, weaponized as easily. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I have to give Dennis credit for that because he was he was saying this all last night and I was kind of nodding along and it wasn't until I started talking that I realized, <laughs> wow, yeah, he's on the money. <laughs> Boy, he got that. I will say that as much as you see that as a darkly optimistic take, uh, I, and, and I agree, I think it's also part of the tragedy of the show is that 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 they are unknowable, ineffable, that that Philip and Elizabeth and we talk about them as Philip and Elizabeth, but that's not those aren't their names. I remember he was Misha. I can't even remember her actual name. They, Vishta. <laughs> I, I can't say that. <laughs> uh, they they're so withheld even from each other that you asked Kate why William crushed the vial and gave himself Lhasa. And, and I mean, one of the tragedies of that is that he's done this. And, and I really believe that it's that he sacrificed himself to save the mission, that he sacrificed himself so that he can't divulge what he would if they had him for weeks and months and years but but his compatriots, the people, the only people he's ever been able to be honest with, the maybe three people in the world he's been honest with, have to behave as if he's betrayed them because they cannot know what happened to him. They're never going to know that he died. They're never going to know how he died. They're never going to know if he died. And they're never going to know that he didn't give them up until he was rambling in a feverish delusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I meant about, you know, the sort of kernel of optimism. I mean, the optimism is that even when people are weaponized, they'll still be tragically unhappy about it yeah. and unable to completely become what, you know, these these um, faceless kind of governmental, you know, bodies would like them to be. But for the characters themselves and the people themselves, obviously, I mean, they're all going to be destroyed. <laughs> and they're going to, as you say, destroy everyone they touch. I mean, yeah. even, even their children, they're destroying Paige with attention and they're destroying Henry with inattention. And either way, it's destruction. They love their kids, but they're indoctrinating Paige with this combination of reassuring lies and continuous pressure, crushing pressure. Um, there's a scene in the finale where Elizabeth comes into Paige's room and Paige is in bed under the covers and Elizabeth tells her to scoot over and they snuggle in together. And the first thing Paige says is that Elizabeth should teach her to kill people with her hands. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't phrase it that way, but she says, you know, if we're in danger, maybe I should learn to take care of myself. And 
that's what she means is you killed that guy with your bare hands. Show me how to do that. But then even as they're coaching her to, to engineer her really deeply personal relationship with Pastor Tim and Alice as this manipulative engine, Philip is also scolding her very sternly uh, about using Matthew Beam in the same way. You know, he's he's saying, don't don't see Matthew anymore and don't see him for us. But they must know that inevitably she's going to end up if she stays with the mission, she's going to end up doing exactly what her parents do, which is using every part of her mind and body to engine to 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 manipulate people. Mm -hmm. I have a question. How is this show not? horribly depressing to watch. Why are we still watching when everything we've talked about is depressing? Well, it's exciting. I mean, it's, you know, it, it at its heart, you know, it's, it's, it's about as um, pulpy as you can get. I mean, you know, when I was talking to Emily again about, you know, I used to work in a video store uh, and uh, you know, I'd try to recommend the show constantly to people and you try to sum it up and you can see their eyes glaze over if they're not, because you have to describe it as, oh, Ru Russian sleeper agents pretending to be an American family. And, you know, it just sounds silly. Uh, and there is a certain amount of, you know, it's exciting. It's, it's you know, it, we love a good thriller. We love a good spy thriller, especially. And when it does, the show does do its action sequences or its suspense sequences, they're, they're the best on TV. They're outstanding. Yeah, they, they really are. And the use of music is exceptional. And yeah. and the acting is so rewarding to watch and rewatch. So that's part of it. But uh, what, I, I, there's a David Simon quote, and I, I can't quite recall it. Um, he talks about good genre taking a general taking a universal experience or a deeply personal experience and making it into a genre experience. And this is that, I mean, it's, they're a married couple who are also spies. This is probably a good moment to mention that Dennis and I are a married couple who are not also spies. That's right. That's wink, right. wink. That's right. That's right. I said not, right? Yep. Uh, so, I mean, the the elevator pitch for the Americans is that it's personal relationships as espionage, that it's personal relationships as secret maneuverings and takeovers and, and engineering personal relationships to your own advantage. But, Dennis, y you haven't been around for the earlier part of the podcast, so this this is something that Kate and I have been talking about all podcast, that that the premise doesn't matter. The execution is what makes the show. And so the problem with elevator pitches like, oh, it's marriage is espionage, is that they make everything sound really pat and on the nose. And if a show has the subtlety, it can transcend that core concept. And the Americans certainly has subtlety and it is really thrilling. And it is, it is horrifically violent, but the violence often isn't the hardest part to watch. I don't know about you guys, but the part this season that made me actually cry out in pain was Elizabeth's false seduction of Dennis. Not my Dennis. Not you, Dennis. I get it. You got it. I would have remembered. 
I know you would. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a show where we watch, we've, we've watched a body be crunched into a suitcase. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was hard to watch, but watching her get into that bed with her only friend ever, the husband of her only friend ever was just shattering. Yeah. That's Don. And uh yeah, oh, Don, I'm sorry, not Dennis. There sorry. is another Dennis on the okay, show, sorry, but uh sorry. I've been doing that all the way through. Yeah. Uh but um I absolutely agree. And I think but I think it's also just that the show while it all of this hangs over the show the reality of what they're doing to themselves what they're doing to their children what they're doing to all these people who stumble into their or are sought out for their acquaintance um i I think that is very much hanging in the ether of the show while the individual interactions are purposeful and while they're very human so every time we see philip and stan talking we know that Philip is playing Stan and, you know, building that relationship so that he can exploit it. But we also believe that Philip likes Stan. They're buddies. I mean, doesn't mean that he wouldn't kill him if he had to, but (laughs) in the moment, like, so when you're watching a given episode, the exchanges between the different characters have a level of authenticity to them. It's it's, it's like the Deadwood quote. It's like the um, Swearingen quote of the idea that the best lies... Uh, are seasoned with truth or are peppered with truth. And there's enough authenticity to the different exchanges that even when you know that everything Paige is doing with uh, Pastor Tim and Alice, um, she would love to at this point not be doing because it's so hard for her because she knows that she's lying to them and she's manipulating them and she, that they're, that her friendship with them comes with all of this baggage that, she, you know that it's not a choice she can't choose to spend time with them as much as she would love to but it is no longer her choice so she constantly is lying to them but when you see them interact there's still genuine emotion in those exchanges so i think the show the way that the show at least for me balances the the genuine and the the authentic in their exchanges in their interactions while never forgetting all of the compounding lies around each of these characters is incredibly masterful. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you. And something happened in the finale that genuinely shocked me. And it's so small. Uh, Gabriel is telling Philip and Elizabeth, he tells them that he wants them to go back to the USSR. And that is not the shock for me. The shock is that he says, this job wasn't meant to be forever. And I thought, really? Because they live as a married couple. They had children. They brought other human beings into this world as part of a cover that was supposed to be temporary. This is the most elaborate dehumanizing kind of weaponization of a human being that I can imagine. He says, you've had a good long tour as if this is just a tour of duty. And then they're going back to a USSR that they can't even imagine it. Elizabeth, Elizabeth asks Philip if he 
imagines what it might be like now and how much it's changed. And, and neither one of them can. Neither one of them can decide how much it might have changed. They yeah, certainly I'm... can't imagine their children there. No. Oh, God, no. But they can't even imagine themselves there. That The right. scene right, right uh, immediately after their conversation with Gabriel is it's scored by uh, it's Leonard Cohen singing uh, Who by Fire. And the the chorus is Who Shall I Say Is Calling? And it's so it's so right on the money because they don't even know who they are in this in this imagined world where they go back to Russia. Yeah. When when Gabriel says they'll get uh, they'll get medals when they go back. I was, yeah. just, I was like, wow, great. But I, I mean, I think <laughs> that's the, the nature of kind of what I've been talking about is that, that they all know and are in a, uh, an enormous constant state of denial about the fact that what they are is not human, is not tenable as an existence. You know, they, they have fights about whether to bring Paige in and then now they have all these kind of hooded glances and conversations about Henry. It's like when, the, you know, Gabriel suggests bringing them back. You, you can, you know, the idea that that they would uh, they would take along Henry and he would they would have to break the news. It's just you know they knew all of these things that all of these things are obvious and present through their lives, but it's they're human beings and so they make accommodation for that fact by ignoring it uh in order th in order that they can you know one accomplish their mission and two just kind of live and you know the as to what's going to happen to them i mean it's that's the big question because it's not it's not conceivable that they'll go but it's looking less and less possible that they can stay so i mean that's where it's always been headed and and in a way it's it's again it's They've all known it all the time. That's why I was so surprised to see the show get picked up for two more seasons. Yeah. Because I don't know how they can possibly sustain this for two seasons. Even if they keep, have a, give it a condensed timeline, which I would assume, I mean, that would make sense for this show. For like a dramatic situation to be unfolding over the course of like a month or two that could easily fill an entire mm -hmm. season of the show if they wanted to. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, that tells me that they have a very specific game plan and that they need two seasons to do it. I am just worried that if they go back to the Soviet Union, they won't need wigs. I won't even understand the aesthetic of the show <laughs> if there's no need for wigs and elaborate, you know, false eyelashes and fake beards and janitor's costumes. I, I am in this for the janitor's costumes, folks. <laughs> Do we have any other favorite moments this season or favorite costumes or favorite characters that we haven't <laughs> mentioned yet? Oh, boy. <laughs> I just, I can't say enough about William Crandall. He's just, he's so great. He's so great. He's so, so sardonic, but he manages to do it without being empty, without being vacantly bitter. He he genuinely cares when you give him something to care about. He just doesn't have very much. And I find that kind of, kind of inspiring and really, really endearing that he can be working to, 
to extract a sample that could kill all of us 10 times over and empty our guts out onto the sidewalk. But he genuinely cares about what he's doing. Kind of love him. I I just, I'll chime in again. Just, um, I love when an actor kind of comes into his own and, uh, or, you know, that's, that's a very self-centered way to put it. I'll say, I love it when I, discover an actor I never had much opinion about is is suddenly really good or has found the right role. And I think Noah Emmerich is just, uh, he kills me. Uh, you know, <laughs> he started out as, you know, the plot device. You know, if 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 the the premise was was pulpy, then, you know, this was the, the added pulp on top of the pulp that they're not only, you know, the married Soviet sleeper agents, but they're living across the street from an FBI agent and, you know... <laughs> He was kind of a meathead at the beginning, you know, the gung-ho kind of guy. But uh, he's really, you know, as everything's kind of been stripped away and you've seen him develop, especially his relationship uh, with Oleg, the scene, the final scene in the car where he kind of tells him, you know, that it's it's over, you know, that and kind of uh, the real sadness in the guy as you watch everything he he cares about except this one mission that he's spectacularly failing at and, and doesn't know um kind of gets stripped away from him i just think he's doing a super job yeah absolutely agree um i mean and just then that paired with like the the giddy glee when he finds uh page and his son making out <laughs> <laughs> he's so excited it's like oh man when you find out which will happen at the end of next season or the or the beginning of the season after that, you're going to be so sad. Yeah. Um, and I'll tie that tie that into then uh, an element we haven't mentioned, but I just I adore that they have kept Est or that they they kept Est around for Phil. <laughs> it's it's such it's such an important part of his story now, and I didn't foresee that, but. Yeah, he needs no some... one for <laughs> He needs some meaning in his life, and he found it as improbable as that seems. Yeah, and the way that the character interacts with it, the way that the way that Elizabeth does as well, like her trying to understand it and not respecting it, but trying to like, I just I love that. It's just such a specific kind of quirk. Um, and I, I would be, I would be very surprised if that was part of the original plan, but I think that they <laughs> they had like, well, why not introduce that? It could be part of Stan and uh, you know, uh, Susan Meisner's uh, the, the 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 as that breaks up, that can be part of that. And then they just were like, wait a second, this makes super sense, perfect sense for Philip, and bringing that back and really incorporating it into parts of the season too. I just the creativity of these writers, man, it's fantastic. Well, we've gone super long, <laughs> so. Unless anyone has any burning final thoughts. I have one. I have one thought, and it's it's pretty brief. It's a question. What does it mean that so many of our great contemporary series are about compartmentalization? Because if you think about it, they really are. The Americans is is an extraordinarily specific example of that. But The Sopranos was about Tony trying to compartmentalize his lives. Mad Men was about Don trying to compartmentalize his life and Peggy to a lesser extent. Uh, Breaking Bad. I mean, I can think of a lot of examples. I think That's it has to do with question. antiheroes. Because Jane the Virgin doesn't have to compartmentalize. <laughs> and 
the comedies we're watching. The com- the show's about good people. <laughs> they don't have to compartmentalize. <laughs> but when you have antiheroes driving your action, um, and I think that term might be even more complicated than ever when you re- use it for the Americans, but um, it's that idea that the, the the villain is the hero in their story, and if they're going to sustain for series for seasons and seasons. I mean, you could also look at something like The Walking Dead. You could look at lots of shows on TV really focus on that I, I think that's um I think it ties into I would I, I my instinct was to say it's a reaction to 9-11 except that the Sopranos started before then right um so I think certainly that that fuels some of our, our storytelling as well but I mean um and especially shows directly responding to something, so like something like Battlestar Galactica which of course has that as well when with all the Cylons and everything but um but I, th- I think it has, uh, if I had to point to a thing, I think I might, I would go with the idea of antiheroes and how can w- someone do, do things that are traditionally villainous while still holding on to um, a central moral compass or being able to lie to themselves about who they are. Um, so, I, I, but I think that's a, like, like Dennis says, that's a short question. <laughs> 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 do, you, do you have any thoughts Dennis no I mean that sounds good uh you know the, <laughs> the um yeah uh you know like I've been saying I mean the idea that people who are you know I I, I guess it probably has more to do with shows that are, are are they have kind of a central kind of pulpy premise you know because it's that's that's the hook that gets you in and the person comes with that baggage and, and a lot of the drama comes from how they, you know, as Emily said, compartmentalize who the, you know, being a human with, you know, for lack of a, you know, for, for a blanket term with the mission, you know, with what it is that they are compelled to do. But yeah, that's interesting question. Well, and why is that speaking so strongly to the viewing public making these shows, you know, or the artistic community who are creating these shows, the the critical community who are loving diving into them and really analyzing them, and the viewing public who are supporting them and keeping them on the air. Clearly, it's speaking to something in our culture. But um, and to have it be such a sustained uh, thing for for decades now in television um, and in storytelling in general, I think is very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that. Uh, with that stumper, <laughs> we're going to wrap up this this segment. I would love to hear from our listeners what they think about this. Um, and they can leave a comment over at theteleverse.org uh, on the post for this episode about that. They can email theteleverse at gmail.com, leave a comment on Facebook, like the page over there to follow the conversation there. Uh, or uh, it wouldn't really work to leave a rating or review in iTunes for that. But I guess <laughs> if you really wanted to or on Stitcher, you could. Um but they can also, of course, reach out via Twitter. I'm at the Televerse. Where can they reach out to you guys with their thoughts on this topic? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Dennis Perkins Five. Uh, I'm always there. Hmm. And of course, your writings up on the AV Club and uh, AV Club, sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, kind of a slow season. I got one show. I'm, I'm reviewing uh, the uh, Alien uh, Brain Ant political satire, Brain Dead. <laughs> and Emily. I'm also at Twitter. Uh, I'm at Emily or else. And I'm at the AV Club. I just finished up covering Lady Dynamite. As we talked about today, I finished up a season of Amy Schumer and I don't know, some other stuff. 
Uh, and I'd love to hear from any of the listeners. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just have Veep coming up. And then I, then I will also be in the what to write about next. The um, dead zone. Dennis. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to get creative. But um, uh, thank you both so much for talking to the Americans with me. And Emily, for coming on all night as we record. <laughs> it's been wonderful speaking with you both. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll be back next week with Noel in tow for another episode of The Televerse. Thank you.